This episode is sponsored by yet another great company that I use and endorse, and that is Bubs Naturals. Now, they are offering you guys a discount on your first purchase with them, and I will get to that in a moment, but I really want to tell you the history of Bubs. Bubs was a call sign of Glenn Doherty, one of the courageous Navy SEALs that died in Benghazi, and his best friend, Sean Lake, co-founded Bubs Naturals not only to bring wellness solutions to the community, but to take 10% of the profits and donate to charities in Glenn's name. So I first came across their collagen through Jeff Nichols and had no preconceived notions or biases, but I started to witness in myself, my nails grow faster, my hair get thicker and longer, my skin, I've got very dry skin and it usually cracks in the winter, that has not happened this year. My joints, the aching, the kind of inflammation has definitely subsided. And then what really blew me away was actually my gut health. I saw that improve. And when you think about the gut is 80% of your immune system, that is incredibly pertinent. They have the apple cider vinegar gummies. I also take those. And then the MCT oil in a powder form has allowed me to put creamer back in my coffee after swearing off dairy for years. But when I have this creamer, it's adding energy, it's adding mental focus, so yet it's another supplement. Now, as far as efficacy, they're the only collagen that is 100% NSF for sports certified and Whole30 approved. So as I mentioned, the discount code. They are offering you 20% off a one-time purchase by using the code SHIELD at bubsnaturals.com. And if you want to hear the full story behind Bubs Naturals and the courage of Glenn Doherty, listen to my interview with Glenn's best friend and Bubs co-founder, Sean Lake, on episode 558 of the Behind the Shield podcast. This episode is sponsored by 511, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 511 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 5.11 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 5.11tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, you'll get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. 
And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, Francisco Morales. Welcome to episode 582 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Tyler Carroll. Now, Tyler is a former army medic who transitioned out of the military and became a firefighter. He is also one of the founding members of Dead Reckoning Collective, the publishing company focused on military authors and poets. So we discuss a host of topics from growing up in Austin to Restrepo and everything in between. Before we get to this incredible conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of over 580 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Tyler Carroll. Enjoy. Well, Tyler, I want to start by saying thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast today. Obviously, I had your fellow Dead Reckoning colleague, founder, uh, Keith Down, on the, the podcast. Um, but in that conversation, he mentioned that you were not only a veteran, but now you're in the fire service. So this has been a long time coming. So welcome. Yeah, no, thanks for having me, James. I really appreciate it. So where on planet Earth are we finding you today? Uh, I live in a suburb of uh, Dallas, Texas. Um, lived here for about seven years now. Uh, I'm originally kind of from the Austin area. And after my stint in the, the Army, uh, followed, my wife followed me to Italy, where I served in the 173rd. And when we got out, she got accepted up into North Texas. So I followed her here and got right into the fire service pretty much like within the year. Beautiful. Well, I love to start at the very, very beginning. So that was a great overview. We're going to go all the way back. <laughs> all right. Sounds good. So, so tell me, um, firstly, tell me about your childhood in Austin, you know, what your family did, your parents, and then um, how many siblings as well. Because I'm curious to hear on top of your kind of through line, Austin is so popular now. So I'm intrigued to hear what it was like, you know, when you were a young lad. Yeah, it's crazy. Whenever, like, I remember, so I left around 2000. 10 2011 and i go to basic training and i start telling people i'm from austin like i'm from like this the town just north of austin leander cedar park area lived in round rock briefly as well but always was in the austin and everybody's like oh i love that city i've heard about it blah blah blah. and i'm like how have you heard of austin it's just like this small little college town like the capital of texas like we were still under a million people at the time whenever i, I lived there uh throughout middle school high school and elementary and everything um I didn't, I didn't make my way to that area until I was about eight. Uh, I was actually born up in Iowa um, from a single mom. So she ended up moving with her mom, my grandma, who's uh, actually in the military uh, station in Fort Riley, Kansas. So we moved down to Manhattan, and my, wife, my mom went to Kansas State University, lived there until about five years, uh, where she met who I consider my, my father. Uh, he played football there. And as soon as he graduated... He joined the military and 
got stationed at Fort Campbell. So I moved over to uh, right there on the border of Tennessee and Kentucky. And they eventually got a divorce. And then my mom moved back with my grandma, who was then stationed in Fort Hood. And uh, that's where I made my way to Austin eventually. Uh, my grandma, like, she was in Fort Hood at Three Corps and First Cab and everything. Uh, she had just finished uh, her stint as a Blackhawk pilot. So, like, real strong, like, female, like, uh, persona and everything. She's a, a trooper, man. She uh, retired, actually, when I was, when, like, within my first year of enlisting. So, it was kind of cool. We have a picture within our class A's together. And she's freaking stacked. And I have my bald head beret <laughs> and all that stuff. So, it's just pretty funny. She served 36 years and all that, but uh, my dad uh, still in. Um, and so I had all this military influence in my life as I grew up, but with my grandma being remarried multiple times, I have two grandfathers. I graduated West Point and they've been remarried multiple times. My mom and my dad got divorced uh, when I was at a young age. And so I just saw the military as like this bad thing for family, essentially. So I did not like it. I had no intentions of uh, joining Um I, uh, I went off to college after bouncing around in Austin and everything. And like I kind of, I alluded to earlier, it wasn't really that big. All I was really known for was being the capital and having university of Texas there, the Longhorns. Um, and it was just like the slogan was keep Austin weird. And like, we completely loved it. And what I used to tell people before it got onto this like global scale, people knowing what it was is. Texas has like the conservative roots and like foundation of who people are, but Austin had this like liberal twist of like accepting people who they are. So like, it was like conservative values, like actually being a good person in my mind. And then liberal is like being very accepting and open-minded um, to kind of progress into where the future's going anyways, without all this tension and res uh, like resistance that kind of conservatives are known to have in a way. So it was a cool dynamic uh, blend of people there. And, uh, it really fostered a lot of creativity and a lot of acceptance for just people in general. And so uh, it just, it was really cool. My high school, I actually just got back from this snowboarding trip with old high school friends. And we were just talking about that is like, there was clicks essentially, but we all intermingled really, really well. There's not a lot of high school drama. There wasn't a ton of fights. Uh, we weren't like in one of the crazy affluent areas by any means. We're in the suburbs, but like crime wasn't a crazy thing. It was just a lot of mischief, like a lot of like suburban mischief, nothing crazy. Like, Little little vandalism here and there, or whatever, and uh, whatever young teenagers get into. But for the most part, it's pretty innocent. So it was just a real safe, cool place to grow up and uh, get to meet some pretty interesting people. So when you look back, what elements of that community contributed to people having their own identity, whether it was a goth, whether it was a hip hop fan, whatever it was, a skater? Um, but you saw the commonalities, I'm assuming, which has enabled people to intermingle versus the polarizing kind of uh, narrative that's pushed at the moment where if you have an iPhone and I have an Android, then we're basically supposed to murder each other. <laughs> yeah, I, man, I don't know. And that's what's unfortunate is like I go back now and you kind of see that divide. Um, one of the big um, issues currently was like the, the issue with the homeless. And there's a huge divide with that with the, the mayor and then the local populace and stuff. But back then, Maybe it was because it was pre-internet, like social media and everything. People, um, Austin's, like the city itself is designed to get people outside. Uh, Lady Bird Lake runs through, right through it. Like Austin's all right there. The Rolling Hills, tons of bikers, tons of kayakers. Like I said, uh, uh, Barton Springs, 
So everybody's always outside. And when you're outside, like, how can you not have a good time? You know, big old Zilker park is like right downtown, like right next to there. So everybody takes their dogs there. Uh, and then with the university, um, it's, has a really good law school, really good business school, but it also has really good liberal arts stuff. And so it brings all these different peoples. And I think that, I don't know what the percentage is or anything, but like they also have a really uh, high foreign uh, student demographic as well. And so I think it just creates that diversity of people all coming together and just coexisting. I know that's like a very like, hippie phrase or whatever, but like, <laughs> they just do, you know, like I didn't, didn't really mean to say it like that but that's just what kind of it is is like everybody just is in it together and like i said i was out in the suburbs and it wasn't like uh super like impoverished by any means so, like you didn't have like people trying to like survive all the time you know like big cities like uh, dallas or houston uh have is the with the capital being there and the university were there i think the economic state was always just stable enough to be like to bring up the bottom a little bit and the city itself being designed for uh, people being outdoors it's just people that are moved i guess that's a i haven't really thought about it too much other than like i said just the university and the state kind of having these two different ideologies and they just kind of existed simultaneously yeah what's well, interesting to watch because i mean obviously you got people like you know tim kennedy joe rogan tim ferris i mean they all kind of descended on that well tim's obviously originally from there um yeah but I always lived there for a long time. But another interesting take is I saw the whole pushback with the homelessness as well. But I wonder, especially with San Antonio being such a densely populated military city, how many of those those homeless you know men and women are actually veterans? You know what I mean? So it's so easy to kind of pigeonhole. Well, they're bums, you know. But no, they're human beings that took a path that led them to here, which I doubt they dreamt of when they were three years old. But you know. What a kind of slap in the face if, if I mean, it, it, regardless of whether you are or not, it shouldn't be an issue, but especially if you're a homeless veteran and you're being shooed out of a city that is, is you know, founded on, on military values. Yeah, no, it, um, not, not to make light of it or any, anything, but with, with like Austin being so beautiful, it's like, and, and now it being so expensive, I think a lot of people were almost jealous of the homeless at that point because they had like lake front, like lake front property. There was this whole camp there, nice tents and everything. And like, I'm making light of the situation, but like you, you just, even within the homeless uh, community, you could see such a range of like the youth um, where maybe it possibly was more of a choice to just be like, Hey, I want to be in Austin. And then dreams failed and they got caught up into the scene. And then also like the older side of things where you, they probably were veterans. Uh, the people were actually absolutely wearing camis and everything uh, in that area. So you don't know if they got them from a surplus store or if they're reliving their glory days, who knows, but you're right. San Antonio has Lackland, um, uh, uh, Bamsi right there uh, or Samsi. I always forget which one it is now because it's changed multiple times. Um, but yeah, they have like what the three little bases I'm, I'm blanking on the one that I was even at. Uh, for medic school <laughs> but um i guess it's only like what 45 minutes away too so uh you'll probably go back and forth but i, I haven't really thought of it too much about the, the military uh, community being the homeless down there or not but it's a good point yeah what well, i mean it's, i'm curious as well because i had an uber ride and it was so funny um we just went out for a meal and we were responsible we ubered there we ubered back um and on the way back we had this amazing 
older African-American gentleman. He was from the uh, San Francisco area. He was uh, a gay man. And so he was, you know, telling us, you know, come some of the observations of living here in it was South Florida where we were. Um, and I don't know how we got into it. I always chat to the Uber, Uber people. You know, my, my uh, wife always cringes. I'm like, dude, I'm, I might learn something. It'd be a great conversation. Oh, but anyway, absolutely. so we did. So to the point where we'd stopped so long outside our, my wife, where she, where she is in med school at the moment, that Uber like sent us, the driver and us, like this, are you being murdered message? And we're like, no, 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 we're just chatting. Calm down. <laughs> but, but the whole point was he was saying the thing about San Francisco is it's so expensive you you only have a home until you can't ha- afford a home anymore. So in some of these cities, and Austin yeah. has definitely become that way, yeah. if you are pricing people out of being a homeowner, there's an, a percentage that ultimately will become homeless. And it may not be through addiction or whatever. It may f- literally be the, whatever they do to put money in their pocket is not enough to put a roof over their head. Yeah, no, that's actually a really good point because <clears throat> whenever I got – on with the fire department that I'm at now, um, my wife and I are like, well, we want to get back home. And so I tested for Austin pretty early on and actually got into the process. And we had to make a decision uh, if I was good or actually got the offer. So I was about to go down and we had to make a decision. But at the time she was pregnant, uh, she was finishing school. Uh, our life was pretty comfortable where we were at. And I felt like I could make a difference at the department that I'm at right now, uh, being a little bit smaller of the department or just kind of being a number within the system. But a big holdup was home value down there. The salary comparison was almost the exact same for the department that I'm at up here, actually getting paid a little bit more compared to Austin fire, but home values, like, I don't know the exact percentage, but it's a lot more <laughs> than it is up here. You can get a lot more bang for your buck up here. So we, we ultimately decided that we go down, we were going down a lot more now that we have four kids, it's a little bit more difficult, but we go down multiple times a year. So, we still get our Austin fix and every time we're like, man, do we want to come back down? And then I go on Zillow or Realtor and I look at homes and I'm like, man, I don't know if it's going to happen right now. So yeah, this, Zillow says this price no. Out is absolutely. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> this estimate. Oh yeah. yeah it's, it's, it's absolutely crazy. My mom's uh, lives North of Austin. She was able to get some land, but she's over an hour out of the, out of the city now. And that's the only way that they were able to afford anything. Uh, uh, reasonable for what they were wanting when i worked for anaheim fire it was um i was there oh five to oh eight and so that was obviously when the the house prices were going insane and it was the variable mortgage where you just paid the interest and so it seemed affordable and then again five years later your whole world collapses anyway so i came from florida so i'm like you are out your fucking mind if you think I'm going to spend half a million on an 800 square foot 1950s house like what is wrong with you people um it it was and and so that's a big part of what's happening here and I was at a wedding probably two three years ago or something and some guy smarter than I about real estate and investing and development and city development and all that was saying that Dallas Fort Worth is the new Los Angeles essentially because how much business is actually coming here and how much land's ready available for um, business, big businesses to move in here and then just uh, for the job market to always stay stable because there's just so much people and so much room for growth because you can just go out and out and out and out of the Metroplex. And then Austin is the new San Francisco, essentially, where big tech companies are moving down there. Space is uh, a little bit uh, more limited. And so the price of land and the price of house, price per square foot is just skyrocketing. It's insane. And 
you see that happen over the past decade and it's, Oh, I was just down there a couple months ago and it's just new highways being built, new big businesses being built, all these new neighborhoods. There's like a high school from like being built almost every year uh, where I, where I grew up. It's just, it's nuts. Mm-hmm. And it's a beautiful city. My, my in-laws live in San Antonio, which is why I'm somewhat versed in that particular yeah. pocket of the country. But uh, I got to, I was very lucky. I got to go and um, train with um, Jethro Mullinax and Tim Kennedy a couple of times, do like a, I did yes. a like CrossFit wall with them one day and rolled with them a couple of times. And when I say rolled, I just lay on the mat and, you know, let them, not let them. <laughs> They murdered me <laughs> yeah. simultaneously. Yeah. Um, yeah, you tried to not let them. Exactly, and it was probably like they were probably so bored as well. But anyway, it was it was brilliant. But yeah, that that there is so much there. But you see this mass exodus from California as well, and you think about the wages that you know those people had and the value in the homes they're leaving. It yep. makes it affordable to come to somewhere and pay more. You know, oh cash. Yeah, Look, just even within my house uh, where I live. I was able to only, and it's like the one time in my life I've ever played the veteran firefighter card. Like I, I always feel like dirty doing it. I wish like I, I'm proud of what I've done and all that good stuff, but I just don't like using it to advance myself in my life. I, I probably should at times, but that's for a different story or a different topic, different conversation, whatever. But for the house, I, I was like, I really want it. It's, uh, it's in the same city that I serve. Uh, a little older so I can remodel it. It's on a great little plot of land. Um, I wrote the letter and I was able to get 10,000 under asking price. And they reached out to me because her husband was a retired Dallas police officer and her daughter actually worked in our dispatch center. And so the daughter reached out to me personally while I was on shift and was like, Hey, you want to make, you want to buy my mom's house? And I'm like, well, yeah. And they're like, <laughs> well, we're getting twenty, $30,000 asking overpriced cash. And so we had to kind of meet in the middle and stuff. And it was from investors, out of t- out of state investors. But since they like grew up in this house, and like I live in a cul-de-sac, like everybody knows each other. So they were like, "No, we want to put a family there. We don't want some. We don't want renters. We don't want all the. Uh, we want to know the people that are, are moving in. And they've actually come by our house and seen some of the work I've done. So it's pretty cool. Very very cool. Well, that's a nice little segue back to your kind of earlier life. Then, um, so you touched on. You know, have, seeing some of the kind of ripple effects of military service, some of the negative ripple effects. Obviously, there's there's good and bad. Um, before we kind of walk through your your journey, your career journey, I kind of want to circle back to your grandmother again because yeah. many many times people on here like, yeah, my granddad was in, my dad was in, my uncle. It's not often yeah. they say my grandmother was a Black Hawk pilot. So we need to learn a little bit more about her. So so what made her go in and then talk to me about her career journey? It's so funny. I had uh, going to like Dead Reckoning just briefly. Whenever I first finally got to meet Leo Jenkins, our, our, our first author, and we're doing our little book release for his uh, poetry book, War and Peace, uh, we were staying at uh, some Airbnb just talking like this, telling old stories. And I just briefly like went over, yeah, my grandma's a Black Hawk pilot, and I keep going on with stuff. And he's like, wait, what? <laughs> he's like, that's the story. That's the book that you need to write. That's the Everybody wants to hear about that. And so I talked to my grandma so much, like, you need to get your story out there because she has a pretty wild life. But yeah, she, she enlisted. She has six kids. Um, my mom's the oldest. Uh, like I said, multiple husbands. I like just with the, the, the status of the military life and bouncing around so much. She was a Desert Storm veteran, uh, Black Hawk pilot, yet stayed in, uh, served for 36 years and retired as a Fulbright colonel where she was like the brigade chief of staff of recruiting for like the Southwest region or like Midwest region or 
uh, South Central region. I think it was South Central region because it was uh, Oklahoma, uh, Arkansas, Louisiana, and Texas. And that's why she was at three core there in Fort Hood. And uh, funny enough, like whenever I was like getting out or whenever I was getting in, she was getting out and she was a huge reason why I got like my duty station and everything. Like she pulled one last string to, to help me out, but she, um, she enlisted as a national guard, uh, served about, I think 10 years or so for, uh, Iowa, Iowa and Iowa uh, national guard, uh, did green to gold, uh, at Kansas state where she went, met one of my grandfather's who was a West Point graduate who was there at Kansas State teaching and uh, they got together and everything. And uh, yeah, she just, she's lived a pretty crazy life. Now with, again, those previous generations, have you had any conversations, you know, obviously now having your military experience and the fire experience, any conversations when they look back and reflect on what elements of service and or even prior you know, childhood trauma, whatever it was, that led to some of the, the trauma in their own lives? Ooh, so, like, well, so I know alcoholism is a huge uh, factor in my family's life generationally and everything. And I know my grandmother's dad, like, didn't, they didn't have that big of a relationship and he passed away really young. Uh, my biological grandfather, so my mom's dad passed away um for while i was really young uh but as far so it always just seems like the rough childhood so she grew up very very poor uh kind of dysfunctional relationship with parents unfortunately and then wanted to make something of herself and then my dad who like the guy who i consider my dad he joined in order to uh prove that he was a man and everything and he became an infantry um, infantry and then became special forces and, and all of that. And he had a crazy childhood down in uh, like East LA, like gang violence um, where you always just had to prove who you were constantly. And he was the oldest of uh, four brothers. So he felt like he had to like protect them at all times. And then kind of with me, it just was not knowing who I was with not having necessarily a father figure because they got divorced when I was really young kind of wanting to prove who I, who I am. And then I kind of messed up on my first attempt at college and really trying to prove who I was. I failed it initially. And so total like depressed and very low self-worth, unfortunately. And I was like, well, man, the steps have already are lined out there in the military path. I've seen what my, my grandmother's now accomplished. I've seen what my dad's been able to accomplish. And it's like, they have a clear path to success. If you just follow these steps and I'm, not very structured in my own life, like, like inherently, but when I have structure, I, I thrive in it. So I was like, okay, I think that's what I need. And I think that that's what happened with my family is we're, we're very capable once we're kind of given the rules to the game that we're playing. And then once we know that those rules, we can succeed. But as far as just being out there and meandering on our own, it, it leads to some disasters. <laughs> Now, with that, so when, when you were at the kind of school age, you mentioned about not wanting to be in the military. What were you dreaming of doing at that point? Uh, and I was lost. I was playing sports, so I really liked that. But I knew, like, I could possibly go to, like, a JUCO or D2. Uh, but when I hurt my knee my junior year, I was like, okay, well, football's done. Uh, weightlifting's done. Um, what else do I have? Well, I was uh, – I like to think I was somewhat artistic. And so when I went to college initially, I was doing graphic design and that's what I kind of wanted to do. 
was a he's some type of creator. I wanted I wanted to create something from nothing, and but I wasn't sure what exactly that meant. Um, I just wanted to design things. I, I was really good with doing computer programming stuff back in the MySpace days. I would design backgrounds for friends for free, and I'd write programs that I just kind of self-taught. I was like, man, this is just cool. So I was thinking maybe like website design. I was thinking of just like just graphic design, anything on the computer, and maybe eventually uh, like long media like and film and all that stuff. That's kind of like where I uh, potentially was going to go. But then when I failed my first semester of college because I was partying too hard, I was like, well, maybe that's not uh, for me. And I think what that kind of boiled down to was there wasn't much like a meaning or purpose, like the the, the general thing that most of us are looking for when we join the military is just sitting by yourself trying to draw something up on the computer like it's fun and it's a little bit of an escape but it doesn't provide a whole lot of self-worth you know and so I needed I needed that and I think that that came from at the team environment playing sports where I knew my role and I was able to contribute within it now, I know you found yourself in the Army and ultimately as a medic. So what was your kind of enlistment story and how did you find yourself there? Yeah, so again, I did not want to join. Like, I'm pretty open about it. I had a lot of mixed feelings about the military. I, I respected what uh, it had offered um, my family and everything that they were able to accomplish. But again, I saw all the disaster on the back end of the families and everything, all the divorce, all the time away. I wanted to make sure I had a foundation for my family in the future where I'd actually be around my kids and all of that. And so after I failed out of college, I ended up moving back home, hated moving back, moving back in with my mom, 19. I was like, this isn't how I'm supposed to be. I'm supposed to be a man. I'm supposed to be providing. I'm supposed to be learning. I'm supposed to be doing whatever. And then eventually I moved in with my grandma, my grandma, uh, where she was still in. And she had some land up there near Fort Hood and she had an extra house. So I kind of just became a ranch hand for her because she had, 12 acres, some horses. She runs a, like a dog breeding business as well. So I was helping clean up dog crap and groom dogs. I just cut trees and fences and cactus and just a bunch of things that they just needed work done on their land as they kind of got into the shape that they wanted. And she always was trying to recruit me since I was like eight years old. I was like, grandma, not doing it, not doing it. And my grandpa at the same time, he was uh, an engineer for uh, the engineer of course with A&M. And he, he was a tanker uh, after, a West, after being a West Point graduate. And he was like, you need to do it probably. He said, like, you don't have anything else going for you. Do you really want to live with your grandparents? And he kind of just calling me out. I'm like, no, not at all. And my best friend uh, was looking at the Surviving the Cut videos for Ranger, like Army, U.S. Army Ranger. And I was like, you're an idiot. You shouldn't do that. I'm like, you don't know what all that means. And he's like, I'm going to be a badass. I'm going to be a badass. I'm like, you're an idiot. You're an idiot. And like literally just one morning I woke up and I'm like, Maybe he's not like he's actually about to go do something. And I'm still just living at my grandma's working on her land, not really making any money. I'm just like literally paying like my rent to just work for free, essentially. And so I started talking to her a little bit about it. And I thought, well, maybe military intelligence would be kind of cool. Like I was going to kind of shy away from like, the combat. I was like, I'm going to set myself up for once I get out. Like I'm going to do my four years. I'm going to be done. Let me get a skill uh, after I get out. I was like, military intelligence. I have an aunt that is a Korean linguist. And so I was like, that'd be kind of cool. She has top tier clearance now and big government contracts and lives in a big house and is doing well. So I was like, I could do something like that and get behind the scenes. I think that'd be kind of cool. 
And so when I go to Mets or when I go to the recruiter, I don't tell anybody. And the recruiter is trying to get me to do like chemical specialist or a truck driver and all these jobs for the needs of the army. And I'm like, I want military intelligence. And I'm like, and if I don't do this soon, like I'm going to talk myself out of this. Like, is there like a one-stop shop? And she's like, yep, go to MEPS up in Dallas. You'll talk to the person. You'll sign a contract that day. This was a Thursday. I leave Saturday up to Dallas. And as I'm sitting there about to sign my contract, I keep telling him, I need military intelligence. This is what I want. This is what I want. And he's like, we don't have it. Is there anything else? And like, I don't know how, how faithful of a person you are or not, but I'm like, I just heard God speak to me. And he's like, what about something within the medical field? And I was like, because that would be, it's like recession proof. Once I get out, I'll have a good foundation. I've always liked fitness. So I've always kind of liked health. I was pretty good with math and sciences in high school. So I just asked and he's like, nope, nothing. And I was like, well, then I'm sorry, but I'm not signing today. Like, I don't want to do any of these other jobs. And then like a used car salesman, he's like, hold on real quick. And he grabs the phone, he dials up some numbers (laughs) and he's like, Hey man, oh my God, I I need to get, I need to get a spot. I need to get a spot. He's like, ah, man. All right. I understand. He hangs up. He's like, there's nothing. And I'm like, I'm sorry. And he's like, all right, one more time, one more time. He pulls up the phone, he calls up and he's like, man, I really appreciate it. And he like acts like he got like doing me solid. He hangs up, he reaches across the table, gives me a little fist bump. He's like, I got you. This is what I got. He types it all up, pops it up and he shows me this video and it says healthcare specialist, 68 whiskey. And it looks like a glorified nurse essentially. And I was like, well, what is this exactly? And he's like, oh, it's one of the best jobs you can do. You can be on the line. You can work with a surgical team. You can work in a hospital. You could be like a PA assistant. You could be this, that. And he talks about all these other jobs. And he's like, it really just depends on how well you do when you go to AIT. And I was just like, oh, man, I really don't want to be a nurse. I really don't know what I want to do. But, like, you know what? Screw it. Let's just do it. So I signed up. And, like, I literally had the thought, like, it'd be cool to save a life or something or make a difference. Kind of like, again, this would be like a recession-proof job once I get out. So how cool would that be? So I signed. And I called my, my now wife. It was my girlfriend then. She didn't know I went to go read. I'm going to go enlist. I called my mom who didn't know I went to go enlist. And I'm like, hey, yeah, so I'm going to go be a medic in the Army. Brilliant. So walk me through what that training looks like then. So you do boot camp. Kind of what, what kind of junction do you find yourself at? So uh, right off the bat, you go to, I went to AIT or basic at uh, Leonardwood, Leonardwood in Missouri, where you're with a bunch of different uh, MOSs all at this one spot. And it was male and female. And again, I went with the intention to not deploy. I was going to just get my, get my experience. I was going to try to kind of be just maybe a shammer or whatever. I was just like, I'm just going to take the benefits that the military offers and get this experience and allow it to open up some doors once I wanted to get out. But when I went to basic, I saw that that's how a lot of these people's mindsets were, where they did not take it very serious. They didn't realize that we were still in a war and I realized I actually did have the mindset of like, oh no, I'm, I'm actually cut different. Like this is a serious gig. Like our drill sergeants laid it into us. Like we're about to, we could potentially go to combat. This job really means a lot. And it stuck with me. So I took it very serious. I got extremely fit. I was studying. I was one of the section leaders and stuff during basic and all that. So I was like, okay, I think I am made different. When I go to AIT medic school down in San Antonio, like these people will take it serious. Like a job could mean a life could be on the line. So I'll be around some serious folks. Nope. Go down there. It's like summer camp. You're in San Antonio. We get off the weekends. Uh, a lot of uh, guys and gals are pursuing each other when they have other people back home. And so I was just like, geez, like, these people aren't taking it serious here. And so I latched on to just a really good buddy who had some prior medical experience before going into the military. 
and he just became like my study partner and we studied our asses off and it's first six weeks is emt where you actually get emt basic through the national registry and then the next 10 weeks is like the combat uh, portion where you're learning more about tcc uh, the tactical ca- casualty uh, combat care and and you do like at the very end your field training rotation at camp bolus where they like put you through like a little miniature deployment and you're working as a frontline medic and then you actually work as, as an aid station medic and then you work as like a, a forward surgical team and you kind of do like these three little phases all like in this little mock-up and I loved it and I graduated number seven out of like 400 people almost and with me be graduating that like within the scoring system and with my PT score being maxed out I got orders for a cash unit out in Fort, Fort Campbell Kentucky Tennessee whatever and uh, I'm like, I don't want that. So I call up my grandma and I'm like, Hey grandma, <laughs> I got this duty station. They're asking for airborne volunteers. And I'm thinking about volunteering for airborne. And she's like, well, where'd you want to go? And I'm like, well, I'm like, I know the airborne units are in Alaska, Italy, Fort Bragg. That's where most people will go. And I'm like, that'd be awesome if I can go to Italy. And I'm like, and if I don't go airborne, if I can get maybe Germany. And I wasn't really telling her to like do anything about it. I was just telling her about how I don't want to do I don't want to go to a cash hospital, a combat support hospital in Fort Campbell. And I don't, and I want to go get on the line and I'd love to go travel the world. So I get these orders for Kentucky and the next week, all of a sudden my platoon sergeant comes out and he's just staring at me, right at me in the eye. He comes up to me and he's like, who the fuck do you know? And I'm like, I don't know, Sergeant, what are you talking about? And he's like, get in the office right now. And I go in the office with him and the company commander. And I'm like, why is my company commander a captain getting a call from a Fulberg colonel saying that we needed to change your orders for the Chins of Italy, the 173rd, and give you an airborne school slot. And I was like, ah, well, I told you I wanted to volunteer for airborne. They're like, yeah, you were supposed to tell us this. Why are we being told from our bosses <laughs> to give you this school spot? And I'm like, I don't know. And then it clicks. I'm like, I had that conversation with my grandma last week. And I tell them about that. And they both just start laughing. And there's, you know what? Screw everybody. Everybody out there, what do you think? He's like, you took your career in your hands. He's like, I've been in the army for 18 years and I've never had that opportunity. So good on you. <laughs> All right, sweet. <laughs> and then everybody just gave me shit for being a grandma's boy at the, <laughs> after it all. Well, I heard you mention that your wife came to um, Italy for you and therefore, you know, you made sure that you went to where she was after that. So what was that like moving your family out there? Um, so... I flew to Italy uh, Halloween night and she was still uh, going to college. But whenever I got the orders for Italy, we weren't married at the time. And I was like, well, the only way that you can come to Italy is if we get married. So I was like, do you want to get married? (laughs) And you're going to stop college for the time being and put that on hold. And obviously she was all about it. Once in a lifetime opportunity to come to Italy. So I head to Italy, get her all out of my orders, come back, get everything all set up. And then a couple months later, she comes uh, out there with me, but it was, it's a process because I was single all the way up until like the week before like going there pretty much. And then as I get there, it's all this paperwork and she's not, not with me. It's towards the end of the year. So I tell her, I'm like, Hey, I'm not going to get you out here before January because you got to finish your semester and we're about to go out to the field. And so then uh, I was able to get like two weeks off during uh, Jan- December. So I'm already been in Italy for like a month and I go back to the States to get, help her get everything already expecting for her to 
come back with me like a week or two, maybe a month after I go back. And as soon as I get back, they're like, Hey, we're going to the field for a whole month. So I'm like, well, do you really want to come to Italy? Not know anybody and live in this small little house that I got us in this villa, like 20 minutes from base. And you spend a whole month here without anybody. So she's like, no. So we get pushed back a whole other month. And then as soon as she finally gets in, it's like, Hey, we're deploying in three months. And so it's like long nights and stuff, but she loved it because she ended up volunteering for the USO uh, almost immediately. And like, that was how she kind of got connected with some of her girlfriends and kind of the community. Cause Casima Adelaide, the base there in Vicenza, it's like 500 soldiers. There's not many of us there. So we get to know everybody really, really fast. And being at the USO and a lot of guys are single or a lot of people left family back home, uh, wife and kids, cause they wanted to shorten up their time there. Like everybody was going through that place and they're doing tons of community outreach programs and she eventually ended up becoming the assistant manager there. So she had a really good experience, but we didn't have kids. And so we get to travel. Like we literally went to almost every country in Europe. And while I would be in the field in Germany or wherever, she would go travel with all of her little girlfriends to Poland and get Polish pottery that we still have in our cupboards right now and everything. And uh, yeah, she had, she had a good time traveling and all that. Well, you've just jogged a memory in my mind. I'm so glad that I was clear-headed enough to remember this. I had Sebastian Junger on a couple of times. Now, correct me if I'm wrong. Were you not either receiving or part of the group that's featured in Restrepo that he was embedded with? Yep. So the 173rd is who Restrepo, the documentary that Restrepo follows, and uh, Korengal. That is the 173rd. It's the second uh, battalion, second of the 503rd. I was in first, and I was the deployment after them. And so we, yeah, we all heard about those guys. And when the Restrepo came out, we're just like, oh yeah, we're about to get it. But they were in the Gorongal, which is obviously one of the craziest places in Afghanistan. We were near there, but it wasn't as crazy. We still had daily firefights, it felt like. But um, that 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 unit has a lot of legacy. And I've never been super good with like military history or or even unit history. I always joke with the guys like in the Marines that I've met now how like that's like ingrained into them and they know every person who's ever won an award and they know every single thing. And I wish I took it a little bit more serious, but the 173rd was spun up. I'm pretty sure by JFK during the Vietnam war. And they were almost like a special operations unit around the Vietnam time. And then uh, when the one, when the GWAT started, we were, we were, we were the unit that jumped in uh, Iraq's airfield. So like, we're the only non-special operations unit with, the mustard stain combat star to jump in. And we also have the most medal of honor recipients during the GWAT uh, total. And it's a pretty small unit. So there's a lot of like pride in there. And what's a really cool thing about the 173rd is like I said, we're stationed in Italy. And so like the way I just kind of described it is like, we're like this Island of Americans surrounded by a sea of Europeans. And we all lived with each other. We all worked with each other. We all played with each other. Like they work hard, play hard. And like they, just become your brothers that much more and it's like you're almost deployed even though you're sitting there in italy like it's uh it's cool it's really really cool so there's a lot of the spirit of core for the 173rd if you've ever been there so i if i remember correctly in my second conversation with sebastian we were talking again about how which is what he writes about in tribe how when they were together all those men um going through hell up there the the morale was high even though they were losing people the morale was high but it was when they came back to italy 
that you started to see the kind of ripple effects of that. And if I'm not mistaken, one of the things he pointed to as well is because it wasn't home. They didn't get to go home. They came back to another foreign country, so they didn't really get to kind of decompress properly. So that's, that's, you had a good memory because uh, whenever I read Tribe, it's like, that's exactly right. We, uh, again, we were an island of Americans. It's like that was our home with each other, but that's not home. You don't get to see family. Um, during the spin up of deploying, it's really good because you don't have the distractions of your family. You don't have the distraction of going to the bars or the clubs with uh, a bunch of other American women around you or anything that are, or other guys or old high school friends or people that you meet in any capacity outside of the military. It's like you only know the guys that you're about to deploy with. So you create a really, really tight knit bond with them before you go. And when you, when you turn, you still have that tight knit bond but you only can kind of like let loose and decompress so much because there's like a lot of restrictions. If you leave the base, um, you're not home at all. A lot of the single soldiers did not like being there because it's a foreign land. Like you, you, you can't go out into the city by yourself really. Like you can, but you feel pretty lost. Uh, you don't know how to speak the native language. Like there's, it's, it's, it's very isolating. And so you kind of just, hermit become a recluse into the barracks room with the other guys and it's like everybody has a is like this kind of like self-wallowing kind of like a spiraling effect but you're doing it with each other and so it's like amplified it's like everybody's just raging and everybody's throwing down because they don't know how to express their feelings with each other and express their experiences with each other even though they're the ones who they did it with and so the responses are just go nuts. And that's what happened. These guys go nuts. And so I got hurt when I was in Afghanistan and I came back earlier. And so I had my own like endeavor of recovering and returning and all that. And when they came back, like there was like this divide just even between us because they had all these inside jokes that I wasn't a part of or anything. And I was married. So I was always kind of separated and I was the medic from the infantry guy. So I was always kind of separated, but I invited them all to my house. And that first night like that we like got together and threw down, like they, we threw down and like in a very, very unhealthy way and a bunch of sobbing and crying and just like, and, and, and I, this is what kind of started dead reckoning is the first essay I wrote was about um, leaving the battlefield prematurely. It was all about how I didn't feel like I finished my mission because I, I got hurt and I came back too early, but I also then related it to is every single one of those guys had the exact same feeling because the war wasn't over whenever they returned. And so it, I think that that's what most guys just struggle with is they just didn't feel like their job was complete. And then when they come back, they don't have their family to kind of rely on them where your family is like your foundation of who you were before you joined the military. It's like, I always had my wife to talk to of like, all right, that, that I'm Tyler Carroll, the kid who lived in Austin, the kid who played football, the kid who did this, that just decided to join the military because I at least had that, attachment that anchor of my past where these guys come back and they're still just a killer essentially and they they don't they kind of forget who they were when you watch something like you know um restrepo korangal and then you look at the withdrawal from afghanistan and you know, yeah. I've had some amazing conversations about this topic and let me be very clear i never served in the military i you know served at home as it were um but you know, when you see that fierce firefighting and you're holding literally a ridge, you know, was it in the Hindu Kush? Is that, have I got that right? Yeah, yeah that's, I'm pretty sure that's where Korngol is at. So I was in the Wardak Providence and Kap Kurwar, so it's a little bit different. Right. 
but yeah. so you're in you're, you know you're atop a mountain basically yeah. <laughs> yeah you know so you know damn well that when that is over like that's you know that's back to whatever hands were in before and of course when you hear the personal stories of these men and women that were overseas they made a difference they hunt those human beings regardless of what sent them there made a difference you know in that community but to see that withdrawal, to see people left behind that were allies. I mean, all this thing. You, I mean, how can you not have that feeling of of guilt and shame when you literally, you know, buried people over there? You, you know, you brought your friends back in caskets over here. You came back with mental trauma. You came back missing limbs, and then you know that there's that sudden withdrawal. It's so important for us as civilians that never serve to acknowledge the service and take care of them now because there's going to be a ripple effect from that, from that entire GWAT generation. Well, absolutely. And it's like uh, we're seeing a lot of the same stuff that happened in Vietnam. And obviously there's the big Sag- um, Saigon helicopter picture that made the, the waves the same thing as the Chinook in, in Kabul. And for me, I wasn't there as long as those guys because I got hurt and I came back. What I struggled with the biggest was, as the medic, I literally held one of my best friends in my hand as he took his final breath, you know? And so I don't want to sound jaded necessarily, but it's like while we were there, we weren't there for the Afghans. Like as bad as that sounds, like individual, like young men, teenagers that we were, we were there for each other. And we were told that we needed to be there because this was the enemy, you know? And the idea was to always pass this off to the ANA and this is their country. So there was always this respect for those guys because they would be right there next to us as we went out into the, the cities and did our patrols, our overwatches. And they were helping us uh, talk to the, the village elders and everything. And they're getting us the intel of where the Taliban caches were and all that stuff. And so there's tremendous respect for those guys. But we joined to serve our country, you know, and we joined to be with our brothers, to be with our guys. And so while I was there, like I was thinking about the guys who I needed to protect as the medic, my infantrymen, you know, and like on my little base, we had a and a guys on there and there was a, there's reports of green on blue going around a lot. And so there was even distrust just between us and we're supposed to be as friendly as possible. And so now that we leave, like, of course I feel bad because we know what is what's going to happen because on a microcosm scale and cop curvoir, as soon as we exfilled that base, because that was our main mission, was disruptment and then pass it off. And so while we were there, we were breaking down that cop. And as soon as we broke it down, within like two weeks, the Taliban took it over and put a freaking general's head on a spike pretty much. Like, so it's like the guys on the ground, we knew this was going to happen if we left the way that we did. So that's what's infuriating for me. And like right after that, I'm like getting out of Afghanistan, the pullout. I was furious and like, I haven't been mad about the war in a long time. I'm just like that never ending forever war. Um, like it's impossible to win. We were doing global war on terror and like to take out every bad guy in the entire world. Like, come on now. Like <laughs> I can't even do it here in the town that I serve as a, as a firefighter, you know? So it always just seemed like these unrealistic expectations, but it's like, I get it. We have these altruistic goals, you know? So like there is some, something to be proud of and have young guys kind of, fight for those ideals but when that happened it it really showed the incompetency of leadership at the very top and then even down towards the ground level because like you said like on the ground level we were we we felt like we were winning every time we went out because we're getting the body counts we were coming back alive for the most part we weren't 
doing too much collateral damage. We were following ROE. We were accomplishing the missions that were set to us. And so when they didn't accomplish the mission on this large scale, we're like, well, we, like, what was all that for? You know? Well, exactly. Well, I want to post a, a question to you. I always ask everyone that was deployed. So you, you obviously were in Italy, then you found yourself in Afghanistan. The, it's a two-part question. So the first part is, regardless of the politics that put you on the ground in Afghanistan, was there a moment when you witnessed something that re- that made you realize, okay, we still have bad people to address? And whether it's whether it's um, you know, things that are happening to the Afghani people, whether it's things that happened to to your fellow brothers, and was there a kind of turning point where you realized the mission was now? You know, it, it was humanized. You're on the ground now. You're seeing some of this evil that's around. So, I'm always so conflicted because I always look. I look internal first, and I think of the bad that I've done too. And so, to have this realization that evil wasn't a thing until I got there is false. Like I knew evil was there since a kid in my youth. Like I've seen it with just how people in love interact with each other and the hatred towards each other, you know, or I remember when I lived in Kansas, when my, my dad was stationed at Fort Campbell and there was a, almost a school shooting just like in a parking lot of a church, you know, that was attached to a school, like in the backyard, like right next to my house. And whenever I was, my dad lived in East LA and I'd go there every summer. I was like literally the only white guy within like a five mile radius. And I would be bullied essentially because my dad's, who I consider my dad's full on Mexican, like a generation out of Mexico and stuff. And a lot, like I said, a lot of gang violence and stuff. So like, I think I always had this understanding that evil was, was a thing even before going there. And what I think we, I struggle with a lot too, is what evil did we cause there with these, this cloak of altruistic goals, you know, like, cause we did do good. Like we absolutely did. Uh, I can't deny that, but I can't fault the enemy for doing what the enemy does, you know, uh, when my buddy died, like they, they surprised attacked us and hit us with the mortar round and RPG around a small arms fire for like an, an hour or two on our base. And it's like a two or three hour firefighters, what eventually it became. And for like, we were just on, all of us were on our base, but it's like, how shitty is that? But it's like within that week, we kicked down the door and took somebody out in their home, you know, and that were supposedly bad guys and stuff. And so, I struggle a lot more with what we could have done, but that's what war is, is like you have to have the stomach for you as an individual having the capacity to do that to other humans. That mirrors uh, an answer I got from a couple of guys that were from through dog. One was SAS, one SBS. And it was the same thing. They, you know, they, they were, you know, we had a mission to do. These were the kind of, you know, rules that we were given for this war. And, you know, the, the enemy saw us the same way as we saw the enemy. And it's, it, all these different perspectives are correct, you know, but, it, but putting them all together. And the reason why I ask this question, I normally preface with this. Anyone who's not in the military, the only real view of, of war we get is from the television. Now, fast forward CNN and Fox, the biggest pieces of dog shit in the media world. You're not going to get any fucking, you know, middle ground. You're just going to get either, you know, kill them all or they're all baby killers, you know. So it's important for us, as again, um, Sebastian Junger talks about with the Veterans Town Hall, that we hear the actual stories from the men and women that were there doing what we asked them to do. It sucks, man. It's That's what I struggle with. And I think 
what a lot of guys struggle with is the most is it's like getting mad at guys that don't meet your expectations at work or something like when we're kind of alluding to like the fire service. It's like I catch myself being mad at others usually just because they're mad about something that I don't think they should be mad at, you know? It's like I don't fault others for just being who they are, including the enemy, you know? Like they actually, they absolutely degraded women, their their kids, they have barbaric lifestyles. Like the the they are not good people. Um, but they where this respect for the enemy is is they're fighting for what they believe in and they're willing to die for a cause. I don't agree with that cause. And if it's me versus you, I'm going to pick me every time. Um, but the, like the collateral damage kind of aspect, like that's what's those ones suck. So flipping that question on his head. You're in Afghanistan, you know, these, these Afghani men, women, and children living amongst this, you know, combat zone. Were there any members, oh, excuse me, any moments of kindness and compassion that you saw that you kind of, you know, really resonated with you amongst all this trauma? One of the moments that always just stick with me that I kind of, I think more than anything, just like showed like how human they were. Um, I don't know if you ever watched Black Mirror or anything. Yes, I love that, especially the game, the video game one. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. There's so many, there's so many good ones. The video game, but one of them, uh, they mess with their vision, and the the soldiers see this uh, inferior um, uh, inferior uh, race as as, uh, as roaches or whatever, and they're all like distorted or whatever. And the idea is to not humanize them. And I think when you're going over there, you're already like, okay, yeah, these are these are the Taliban. These are the whatever. Uh, whatever derogatory term you want to put towards them, you know, because you got to kind of think like that. Well, I remember we were shooting our Mark 19 at, from one of our towers after we got hit and we were following the Taliban into an area and shot up all the stuff. And a couple hours later, like that whole village, like, like 30, 40 villagers came up dragging a donkey that we had blown up. And that moment just always really sticks with me because it's like, man, like these, this is their home. Like these people are like the innocents, like, they just want to live here yet we're trying to protect them. The Taliban is trying to rule them yet through our protection, we have destroyed their livelihood. Now we paid them. We did all this other stuff, but it's just like, you could just see like it, that was only one family's donkey yet. The whole village came around to support them, support that family to come talk to the Americans, you know? And, because we're intimidating. We're wearing all this body armor. We have freaking guns at the low ready as they come up to our, our entry point. And you just see how upset they were that now this family was going to have to go through this. And there was a community, it was a communal kind of uh, effort to address this concern. And I just remember like that they, they like they love each other like this is their home this is like all of that and that moment always sticks with me well another thing that's a common denominator and this is a beautiful thing about having hundreds of guests on here is you after a while you see these kind of lines intersect and you're like well shit there's probably truth here here and here and not, not just truth but there's a there's an over overriding element that's sticking out um and one is that if many of these guests could have actually been in command of this whole reaction to 
it would have been a rapid assault in a breakdown of the terrorist training camps, you know, hunting whichever figures you could, but then a, a rapid extract as well, you know, rapid exfil. I'm, I'm a civilian pretending that I know about military terms, but, you know, getting the fuck out of there. There you go. Um, and therefore, there wouldn't be that element of staying, you know, like building bases and basically occupying. That's what I'm looking for. Which, which to me is how you create more terrorists and more enemies. So with, you know, retroactively looking back, I know you were in it a little bit later. What would be the right way of doing it if we could have a do over, if we could do it again? Oh man, I'll be speaking out of my wheelhouse on this. I was, I was a line medic for, uh, for a infantry platoon. You know, I, it's funny, like now that I'm over in the fire service, I have a lot of guys who hunt and they talk to me about guns. And I'm like, man, I know the M4 and the 9mm, I'm like the 9mm Beretta. Like, <laughs> that's what I know. So to go, I have a lot of opinions, but they're, only, that's, they're pretty much just that. It's observational of, of opinions. They're not necessarily rooted in any kind of uh, like strategic, like command level uh, knowledge. But that's that's what makes sense to me is when we spent that long there, I remember a Vietnam vet talking to me and it was a buddy that I deployed with father. He came, bought us drinks one day and he told us that he felt bad for us. And I couldn't understand what he meant by that. And it was for the fact that like in world war one and world war two, like the guys on the ground saw the end efforts to what they were fighting for. They went to war to accomplish the mission, and they came back. Vietnam was kind of like us, but it wasn't nearly as long. But they would go there, and they usually wouldn't go back, other than like a select few. It's like they'd serve their time in war, but that was about it. Here, it was like nine, twelve month, fifteen month deployments, whatever, home for maybe a year, and you're going to be told to go back. And so, this constant assimilation is what has really, I think, messed up the GWAT uh, generation. And so exactly what you said is what would have made sense is for us to get in, get out. And it became very political and it became very money driven and, and, and economically advantage, advantageous. And so it, made, it would have made sense to do this a lot faster. Yeah, and it just seems to be, I mean, A, it's a common sense thing. You don't have to be in the military to take a step back. I've had many discussions with, you know, paralleling war and, you know, the pharmaceutical industry where both won't make money if, for example, drugs, if you have a whole bunch of, you know, super healthy people, then you only make money on the drugs that really should be there, anesthesia, emergency meds, those kind of things. And the same with war, you know, you obviously would make a lot less money if we went in did our business and then left within a year and a half, two years. And it does seem that when there is profit attached to keeping people sick or keeping people deployed, there's a very dark force that's keeping you pulled in the wrong direction. And sadly, when those same organizations can lobby our politicians and presidents, then you really have to question the whole system. So I will, I'll do a little bit of a little, little, uh, sales pitch here for dead reckoning and everything uh we, we we just republished the book war is a racket written by general uh smedley butler and we had thomas schumann from Killzone uh write the ford and he's a current active duty marine uh major and we talk a lot about this 
and he can speak to it way better than me. But that is essentially it is back in World War One, the army became pretty much the mob essentially for the politicians and big business. And always an easy example I give to people is back in World War One, one of the examples that Smedley gives is they said that, oh, there's mosquitoes in the trenches in France. And so they contract out through the Department of Defense to get mosquito nets for the troops and spend over like $20 million or whatever it is. And the mosquito nets never make it to the troops, yet that company got paid. Like that's just the type of stuff that happened back then. That's a very easy example that I remember from my readings of the book. But that's the same thing here is when you have a standing army standing at the ready, at all times, which the founding fathers were against, you are incentivizing war. You are preparing for war. You are looking for war. And what's happening within Ukraine right now, what's happening in Taiwan right now, what's happening in Syria right now, it all incentivizes war. And the people who profit from war are the politicians of big business. And the people who pay for war are the taxpayer and young men. Absolutely. It's funny, uh, Jeff Nichols, who's... Uh former SEAL Team 6 and just a strength and conditioning guru, um, we were talking about this very thing and with the withdrawal, all the, the weapons being left over there. And he said, but what people don't know is those are already paid for. They don't care. The people that made those have already paid. So to them, it's irrelevant. They don't care. Not not at all. <laughs> not at all. Obviously, they left it there. <laughs> like, yeah. like, how obvious is that? They do not care. Yeah, and, I shit myself. And I, mean, I leave my cell phone in a public toilet. I have to run back. And get it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, that's the thing, and and like I said, I don't get to talk about the fire service too much, but it happened. Look at your local local representatives and what's happening at like local departments within police and fire at times. And I, I, I was pretty critical of the military while I was in. Like I said, I didn't want to join, so I was looking for reasons to not like it. <laughs> you know, and now as a firefighter, I'm like looking at things like just through just a different lens. And it's like, we, we just built a station for three or seven, I can't remember, the, whatever, let's say three million, just to keep math simple. The, the building could have built, been built for 600 million. But on the capitalist side, as a, big, as a business, you're going to get every dollar that you can. So you're going to overcharge. And then on the bureaucratic uh, municipality, municipal, you know what I'm trying to say, municipality side, um, it's not your money to spend. It's the tax dollars. So they're like, yep, sounds good. Bam, here you go. And I'm sure there was some deals within city council hiring a buddy who's a general contractor or whatever. That's me speculating. Now, that's definitely probably not true. But it's like that's the stuff that happens at, at local levels as well, you know. But when it's not your money to spend, i.e. the government, and it's a taxpayer, you're way more willing to spend it and you're way more willing to put yourself in debt. You're way more willing to do all that stuff. And then on the capitalistic side, you're willing to get as much as you can. And as soon as you get it, you do not care. Like you don't. So like that's how the system's set up. Absolutely. Well, I want to get to the fire service because uh, there are a lot of parallels. I'd be interested to get your kind of lens on that. So you mentioned about getting hurt. Talk to me about your, you know, your wounds um, that you sustained in Afghanistan, and then ultimately what made you decide to transition out, and then we'll kind of walk through your journey into the fire service. Yeah, so uh, it's 2012 when I was in Afghanistan, and the moment that my buddy died was the moment that I got hurt. Our base got attacked with small arm fire as an RPG. Uh, one of my buddies got hit um, by an RPG round. 
I drag him into a conics to start treating him as I drew, pulled him into that conics. Um, I had rear security essentially follow me there because we were on our little range on our base when we got attacked. And so we all were ready essentially. And as we got in that conics, I look around, ask if everybody's fine. Everybody says they're good to go. And a mortar round hits that conics. Well, five of us are in there. Uh, now one of my buddies has been blown up essentially twice in the matter of like a minute. And then the other four of us now just got blown up. I start trying to treat the guy who's been blown up twice. He has a femoral bleed, holding his leg. I realize I can't handle this for myself as a medic. And I find one of the other guys, I tell him to go back to our headquarters, like our living area to let the aid and litter team to know where we're at to come get us. He leaves, come to find out he had a punctured lung and like a severed toe and like peppered all down his body, but he ran all the way, like half a mile away to go get, you go get help. And they came eventually got us. But in the meantime, I turn around after telling him to leave us to go get somebody. And I see my buddy, Theodore Glindy laying on the ground with the glaze looked on his face. I start trying to treat him, realize I can't move my left arm at all. Like I can't physically move it. I get one of the other guys in there to help, strip him down, take off my aid bag, all that good stuff. And when I flip him over, he has one little like dime size hole just next to his like left shoulder blade and uh, wipe it down, put an occlusive dressing on it. And as soon as I lay him back down, he lets out his last breath, start shaking him. His body's just totally limp. Come to find out one piece of shrapnel went in and severed his aorta. Just one little piece. Perfect kill shot, essentially. Realizing that he, I don't know that at the time, we try to start CPR. I'm passing out in the middle of this because I'm bleeding like crazy from my wounds that I sustained. I got peppered all down my back, broke my shoulder blade. I'm missing most of my rear delt, nerve damage on my left side. Peppered down my back, down my ass, down my leg. And I'm literally going in and out of consciousness trying to treat these other two guys. And fortunately, that guy who left to go get the aid litter team got people told them where we were at and they get us out of there. I had a seizure in the hallway as they try to treat me. I'm trying to wake myself up, still trying to help treat the other guys. Just not worried about myself in, in that moment, other than just trying to survive and help other people survive. And uh, they finally were like, Hey, you need to chill. And they gave me some, <laughs> some morphine I relaxed and they flew me out to Bagram. Uh, I got treated there with a wound vac essentially get all the debrisment out and then eventually they told me hey uh you can't go back to italy they can't do the physical therapy uh, necessary necessary for you to recover so where do you want to go and i was like well i'll go back to fort hood go live with my grandma and get recovered so i spent two months there uh getting fit for duty doing physical therapy like three to five times a week mostly five i couldn't i didn't have any range of motion no strength and i got it all the way back and got signed off and that was when like the switch hit where I became like a machine, like singular focus. Like I'm going to go back to deploy. I'm going to go complete this mission. And the gym just became like my new battlefield. Essentially. I was a animal, like no joke. And I started studying it that much more health and welfare, all the holistic approaches. I didn't take any medicine after they prescribed it, anything like that. Like I was, probably should a little bit just for inflammation probably would have helped, <laughs> but I got real into this 
uh, I got into CrossFit, got into yoga, got into bodybuilding, got into just endurance training. I, I got into everything all at the same time preparing to deploy. When I finally got back to Italy after that recovery period, my unit only had like a month or two left of the deployment. And they're like, we're not sending you back for that time. It's just doesn't make sense to, sense to send one person back for that sort of time. And like, we're not deploying back to Afghanistan. Like we're done. That was my unit's last deployment to Afghanistan. And so I was like, well, I've been training. I'm in this mindset. Let me go to ranger school. So I got picked up to go to ranger school after going through pre-ranger through my unit. And my orders were sitting on like the garrison commander's desk to sign to say, yep, you're going to go next month, essentially. See, um, Army got hit with sequestration. And overnight, the Department of Defense lost $37 billion in budget. And so all schools were canceled, uh, both for promotion or career progression or training. So they're like, sorry, you're not going to ranger school. And I'm like, I've been training like for months now. Like, let's make this happen. And I had a buddy that just got to the unit that specifically enlisted or re-enlisted for the 173rd to deploy with us. But like I said, that was our last deployment. My unit was already there. And the recruitment center told him, yep, we'll get you over there. He never got to go. And he was a stud coming from one of the ranger, tra ranger, ranger training battalions. And he was like, hey. I'm going to go SF. Like I, I want to deploy. I'm fit. Like I'm going to make this happen. He's like, you want to come with me? I'm like, sounds good. I was training for ranger school. Let me, so let me just kind of change up some stuff and train for, uh, train for SF and SF is special operations come in. So we weren't, we didn't have to, uh, their budget is separate than the army's budget. So if you go through that training, uh, or that schooling, the big army can't deny it. It's a so totally separate budget. So I dropped my SF packet, I get approved. I go through selection eight months after being hurt and I get selected for, uh, as a, as a medic for the SF and do really well on the language tests and I'm pumped, ready to go. But we, I had like a year left in Italy and I was married. So I was like, well, and you have two years to start your Q course date. So I was like, well, let me finish my year here. And as soon as I, that year's done, I'll go do, do the Q course. <laughs> So my wife and I travel all over Italy or Europe in general and just loving it. And at that time, uh, there used to be a program called the bear program where you reenlist just for the time of the Q course. And then as soon as you're done with the Q course, then you reenlist for your three years of required um, team time. But if you fail or you get medically dropped or any of that stuff during the Q course, your contract's done and you don't have to fulfill the three years. And I had already had three knee surgeries. My shoulder was all messed up from the injury and stuff. So I was like, don't want to risk it necessarily to go through all this. And God forbid I get hurt and something happened. And now I'm at the knees of the army for three more years. So I was always slightly hesitant to just be totally honest. But like, I knew I could probably do it. And my wife was slightly hesitant. Well, like I said, at this time, the uprising in Kiev happened. Actually, funny enough with everything going on. And we were ready to deploy like what we thought was World War III. So my unit, 173rd, we were the Army uh, Response Contingency Force or Army Contingency Response Force. And we sent a company to Latvia, Lithuania, Poland, and all these countries to show support for the uprising in Ukraine to kind of push off uh, Russia. And this was 2014. And at the same time, ISIS was about to, well, ISIS had just taken over Syria and was about to possibly invade Turkey. Well, Turkey was a NATO, is a NATO country, and if they invaded, um, 
we would be able to de- officially declare war on ISIS. And so my company got the orders to deploy to Turkey to be on the border for protection. And I had my Q core state all set up. And I was like, you know what? I love this place. These are my guys kind of thing. Let me push my Q core state up. Let me spend this time in Turkey and I can kind of get some things set up where I can go to the Q core state as soon as I'm done in Turkey, or I know I'm going to get out because I was still kind of on the fence. And while I was in Turkey, I was the lead medic that deployed 80 soldiers as a specialist. So I wasn't even an NCO. I was fulfilling an E6 spot as an E4. And multiple awards. I was ready to go to the board. Every time I was about to go to the board, all this deployment stuff was happening with uh, the Ukraine stuff that it just kept getting pushed. While I was in Turkey, those guys were like, hey, we're going to get you through the board and, and get you your, your sergeant. And I was like, finally, like, I don't really care about rank. I never have. I had the respect and that's what I cared about. Um, but when it finally came to go to the board, the guy who was in charge of me um, left the unit and the guy who was underneath him, who I butted heads with a lot was filling that role for the time being. And so he was who I had to ask to like sign off on me to get promoted. And I am known to run my mouth sometimes and I'd run my mouth probably to him a little more than I should have. And he pretty much was like reenlist or stay at Joe. Like, he was telling me I had to, I had to pretty much do what he said and he had control over my life and he knew it and he was using it against me essentially. And it just like clicked while I was in Turkey. I was like, I'm here in Turkey. I don't want to be here. We're not, we're not doing a whole lot. This guy has control over my career because I upset him because I called him out on just random little things here and there. Nothing crazy either. He just, he didn't like to be held accountable and didn't like to be, uh, have any kind of confrontation with somebody who he thought was less um, un- under him, you know? And it just like clicked. I was like, I want control over my life. I talked to my dad who is special forces and I asked him, I'm like, what's is special forces all what it's made out to be? Or like, am I going to hate it? And he said, things were changing even in uh, the special forces commun- um, community that uh, are kind of headed in, in, in a different direction that I don't think I would have liked. So I was like, you know what? I'm done. So I didn't re-enlist. So I got, got home from Turkey after that deployment. So my wife, I'm not re-enlisting. And I like two months before my contract ended and I was like, I'm done. And I have no idea what to do. <laughs> I was like, I'm going to go to school, I guess. But while I was in Turkey, all, all you do in the military is talk about what you did before you were in the military or what you're going to do when you get out. And a buddy said that he was a volunteer firefighter actually in Florida near Orlando. And he was just uh, talking about the schedule and the camaraderie. And I was already a medic. He's like, man, it'll be an easy transition for you. And so while I was in Italy, I contacted the fire academy that I went through. I was like, hey, you guys have a start date like two days after I'm supposed to get out of the military and fly back from Italy. Like, how do I get you the paperwork that you guys need? And we were trying to do all this stuff (laughs) with a seven or eight hour time difference. And they're like, you know what? it's not a big deal. Just get here. We'll fill out the paperwork like within your first week of school. I was like, all right, well, this is the place that they're willing to work with me. So I flew back from Italy and spent one day in Austin with family. The next day, my wife and I moved to Denton, Texas, where she went to North Texas university. And I went to the fire, one of the local fire academies and was in Denton at my apartment, starting the fire academy, like within three days of getting out of the army. Yeah. Still technically in the military. I was on terminal leave. (laughs) So one thing I see again as a reoccurring theme is people struggle 
when they transition now, obviously my world is people transitioning out the fire service, whether it's getting hurt, retired, fired, whatever it is, or even, you know, promotions. People, people forget about that. You were on a crew. Now you're behind a desk in some, you know, headquarters somewhere. And I think part of it is, you know, we identify as the police officer, the, the soldier, whatever it is. Now you talked about always kind of being in touch with who you were as a person, your family and your hometown. How was that transition for you, especially going from one tribe into another, which would have been your academy class and ultimately your first hire? So we, we talked a little bit about it before we started the podcast is when I go to the 173rd, like, so even before that, when I went to basic and AIT, I had this vision of what the military was from like my dad, my grandma and all this stuff. And it was like, I was going to cry myself to sleep every night or something during basic. And that wasn't the case. It was pretty soft, pretty weak. And I was like, geez, like, is this like these people are going to be our, our country's finest? Like these are our fighters and our, our soldiers. What the heck? And then AIT, I had that same kind of impression, but a little bit better. But then when I went to the 173rd, it was like, no, these guys are studs. And that's why I was wanting to go to special operations because they're going to be even more studs. And like the 173rd is known to be like one of the top tier units without actually being in special operations. And so I had like this level of expectations for myself and the other people that I surrounded myself with. And I did the fire service specifically because I thought it would be an easy transition. I was like, I joined the military to have a skill set. When I got out, I have that skill set. Let me use it. And that's EMT, uh, emergency medicine. And so I joined the fire service more on for the paramedic side of things. And the fire service just was a benefit, like a, like a bonus to it all. I did not want to ride private ambulance by any means. <laughs> like that's not what I wanted to do. I wanted the the camaraderie of the, the fire service. So when I get to the fire academy, come to find out the fire academy that I'm at, it's like I'm class two, a brand new program. So they don't have any tradition. They're still setting up. They're actually ran out of a fire station for fire department. They don't have really the training ground set up just yet. The people that are going through it are all younger, younger people that don't have a whole lot of life experience. And we had a couple of fire instructors that like one was like way more academic, like would nerd out on like pumping operations and like sprinkling and building codes and all this stuff. And then the other guy was just very traditional, like old trucky, like would try to kick our ass essentially. And so I like was like, hell yeah, that's what I'm used to. The other people in the fire academy were not used to that. And like it like there was that realization that like, oh, I'm I'm wired different now. Like they would tell me that too, essentially. And I have a high standard for myself and high expectations for myself. And in turn, I have high standards and expectations for others, especially within the military and the fire service. And when I got hired onto the fire department that I'm at right now, I still had those high expectations and standards, but I'm in a suburban department that is moving a lot more towards EMS than fire. We're not incredibly busy. We have a couple busy stations, but a lot of them are pretty slow. Um, and if you know, like you can just kind of chill and coast in the fire service and be totally fine and make it a whole career doing that. And it's because you are an employee for the town. You're not, an, you're not a firefighter for, like, or employee for the fire department. You are an employee for the town or the city first. And so the HR and organizational level sees you as that, and that's what you are. And so you're covered under that realm of you make a salary, just like the IT specialist makes a salary or just like parks and rec people make a salary. And that's where your paycheck comes from. And so you are an employee for the town and you 
for, for the fire department underneath your chain of command. And so I was, I went in there with this military or paramilitary kind of mindset, realizing pretty quick that I'm, I am wired different. I, I thrive in environments within the team. I thrive within competition and within competition, like there, there's, there's some shaming, you know, like there's some like little people talk shit to each other, you know, and the culture at my fire department fosters that with certain people, but not everybody. And then under HR and under town uh, kind of policies, it, that's not okay. So you kind of get in this little pocket within the fire department where you can kind of get away with that stuff if uh, leadership allows it and fosters it health like in a healthy way. And then within the crew, if they foster it in a healthy way. But as soon as you have some people that kind of see it more as just a job and see it as just the paycheck, which in reality it is, um, it, it gets very corporate very fast, unfortunately. So it's an interesting lens that you have that few people have. I mean, I, one of my uh, my medic partner in my two departments ago was deployed. I think he was in Afghanistan, I think. Um, but he was a uh, corpsman with the Marines. So I know he saw, you know, a lot and did a lot. And, you know, definitely when I look back now with this new kind of perspective I have five years deep into doing this, I realized how much trauma he had going on and, you know, how when we were like basically pushing his buttons that we were doing the absolute worst fucking thing we could do for this poor guy that, you know, was at war. Um, and that was a very, very busy department and we ran our ass off. And, and kudos to the battalion. We had some battalion chiefs there and that battalion, you could almost forget that you were part of this bigger fire department because they ran their asses off. They trained. A lot of them did work out. You know, it was, it was a, it was a great kind of tribe within this much bigger machine that was a fire department. But, when I've interviewed so many people on here, you know, first year is a separation, not so much in fire because our special operations, like our hazmat guys aren't known to be physical specimens, for example, you know what I mean? The engineers yeah. are not known, you know, so rank and uh, spec ops, uh, you know, assignment doesn't necessarily mean that you're a high level operator. But yeah. in, in the law enforcement community, there is. SWAT holds themselves yeah. to a much higher um, level. The special operations community and special forces over and over again, they say that they hold us to that same standard, police and fire. And I agree completely. And I'm not saying that I'm by any means an uber athlete. I'm not the fastest. I'm not the strongest. I'm sure as hell not the smartest. But I made myself the best version of myself, you know, that I could be. And so when you go into the fire service and you see the people who really take it seriously, a lot of times despite the environment that they're in, which is something that needs to change, you know, that's who you align yourself with. But then when you see that more complacent group, it was maddening to me. It's like, do you not understand that if we don't perform the level that we're expected to perform at, people are going to fucking die. Not you're going to mess up that bank statement or flood their kitchen. They're going to die in a horrible house fire or bleed out in a traffic accident or, you know, die of frostbite, excuse me, on a mountain because you you know, tapped out halfway up on your search and rescue, you know, so I never, I never understood that I started to see now that the, the factors that come into, you know, why our job and the shifts break us down mentally and physically, but that level of ownership, despite really shitty management in some places, 
I never understood that disconnect the same way as I never understood how doctors and nurses could become obese and be smokers when they see people die in their ERs every day. It, it's incredibly weird. And one of the things that I really had to learn pretty quick is kind of as a man of faith, I think what really kind of pulled me back to it is I really try not to be a judge because again, that mirror pops up really quick and I can see my flaws but I am very critical. <laughs> and so like, it's really hard not to, to see these flaws and these discrepancies and the hypocrisy. And it's like, why, yeah, how can we be unhealthy when we are supposed to be the epitome of health and fitness? And like, you should own that. But there's just been this, again, like there's this culture of like that competition is toxic and this whole toxic masculinity stuff or whatever, or this whole shame culture. Like there, there's these trending things that, that make it sound like it's bad, but it's like, no, they're there for a reason. And there's healthy and unhealthy ways to do that for sure. What I think has happened as far as like this beat down mentally. And I, and I see myself doing it occasionally. It's like with, I have dead reckoning going on on the side. Like a lot of my focus is moving towards that. And we have guys that have other part-time gigs and they have families and stuff. What is unfortunate is in the military, it seemed like you knew your role within uh, like the cog and then the machine. And you just focused on that. Where in the fire service, it's like you almost become a jack of all trades and you can be surface surface level decent or whatever. But let's say like me, like whenever I got to my department, like I knew health and fitness a lot and I was very eager to like teach and help train and, and I was new. So like you have to approach that, uh, kind of cautiously, you can't be the rookie wanting to change the whole department, you know, but I had value outside of just firefighting and paramedicine and my department didn't utilize it. And I'm like, I can contribute this and they didn't utilize it. We have guys that build homes on the side and we don't use them to help teach us about building construction unless like they're part of your crew. We have guys that are electricians and plumbers. They're not te teaching us about building codes. We have guys that uh, were on fire inspecting um, on the fire inspecting side for a while. And we're not using them for that. We have guys that are pursuing uh, PA degrees and we're not having them teach our paramedic classes and stuff. And so we have guys that are assets within the department that are added value and the department doesn't utilize them the way that they should. And that's what I kind of see what happens there. There becomes kind of clicks and in these inner circles of guys kind of shouldering the load. Some guys after they get burned, maybe by trying to contribute and not being valued the way that they probably should. Um, finally just like, all right, I'm hands off. Then I, I'll just focus on my family. I'll focus on my other gig. Um, I'll just show up and just do my job, whatever, in whatever capacity, because I'm not being valued the way that I feel like I should where some guys like you or some guys like myself, it's like, as soon as I feel like I'm not valued by others or whatever, I'm like, okay, screw it. I'll just show you how much more valuable than I, that I am. And you're just going to miss out. Like I, I just see it in that way. And so I see these guys just shut down and, and it, and it sucks. Um, and so I think that that's a, a leadership thing and it could be a, at a firefighter level. It's like those guys that have that stuff. Like I, same thing probably with you is I ask questions so I can at least be better. And then, Whenever I'm in a different circle with different guys on a sub or overtime, I'm like, hey, did you did you know that so-and-so knows something about this? And I kind of start talking about it or whatever. And that's how you just get knowledge passed around. It, But it seems like older generations, like knowledge was power. And so they kept it to themselves. Or 
when younger guys would question them because we we're in this information age where I can go look up all this stuff and I'd ask them about it and they didn't know now they had now they're insecure because they don't know the answer and they're supposed to know because they have the experience where millennials in my younger generation where we lack experience we're very resourceful and so we can get the information where the older generations weren't aren't nearly as resourceful with the information and the facts or the science or all that other stuff but they have the experience and so there needs to be this kind of a unity working towards the same goal of like, Hey, teach me through experience and I can ask the tough questions and like, let's find these answers together. So that's, that's what I kind of seen like where this complacency happens is people shut down or push out other people from their own like success. Well, I've heard that a lot. Like my last place, especially a number of times I was told you wait, they'll break you down. Meaning, you know, you're, you're enthusiastic and want to make changes and in the end, it, it wasn't that at all. I, I did some things and realized that I was banging my head against a brick wall and even posed my situation to Jocko Willink, who gave me an answer that was completely unacceptable. So I was like, <laughs> and you know, he's an amazing, I mean, if Jocko can't, you know, unfuck the situation, no one can. But his thing was basically, if you've got a chain of command that's completely broken all the way to the top, then you're going to have to play the waiting game, which might be 15 years and hope that that you get new people in. And obviously, a lot of these are they grooming the next shitbag to follow after them. So my thing was to transition out, focus on this, and then apply pressure from the outside in, which is what I ended up doing. So yeah, I mean you can it either crumble out. or you can just figure out, yeah, you can't get through that way. You know, do I tunnel? Do I do I climb? You know, there's gotta be other ways around this wall. Well, and that's what's frustrating too, is because we have a promotion coming up right now and I have a lot of stuff going on with, I'm, I'm finishing a master's this semester in May in creative writing. I have a lot of opportunity with Dead Reckoning coming up. So it's like, I got to really focus on some of that and I'm passing up a promotional process and I'm okay with it. I don't want to be an engineer or driver right now. I still like riding the ambulance. I still like riding, being a, a tailboard firefighter. And I, I don't want to be one of those guys that push it too quick, but we see guys who are going to be testing that probably aren't the best candidates, but there's, we're a young department. And so there's a lot of vacancies right now. And so why would they not test? And they'll probably do just fine and everything, but are there better options? Absolutely. And then the promotional process is skewed and they're always trying to get it better and stuff. And it's frustrating because as I see people who promote up because they want to help try to change and influence, they end up start like kind of selling part of who they are to buy into the game. And then they convince themselves it's just okay. And it's like, man, like I knew who you were before this and like you do get, you gain perspective. And so there, there's obviously going to be, you're, you're obviously going to mature and change some, but they, they kind of start buying in and for good, for better or worse, sometimes they're able to win some battles and some of them, they, they're like, Hey, no, this is just how it is. And so I, I just struggle with that personally. Well, it reminds me of, of like the national element. So, you know, if you're in a system, for example, that we're in now, where, and I talk about this a lot, I, as it stands now, can't stand the left or the right. And to illustrate that that's completely broken, how many times this last, you know, five, six years have we heard the phrase uttered, the lesser of two evils for the last I two know. political candidates? If that is not the rig big red flag that our system is completely broken, then I don't know what is. And I see the same in the fire service. You know, to get to those top levels, you have to 
sell out basically in some of these departments and be you know what they call it the company man drink the kool-aid company man and what really needs to happen is all the firefighter personnel need to come together and say enough is enough the way we're doing this is wrong because i don't think that you have to promote to lead whatsoever i think you can be a leader in the firefighter position but leadership is bringing people together you know and that's the hard thing but when, for example, you're deviating like my last place to one day something epic is going to happen, catastrophic is going to happen at the the park, the theme park that that place protects, and it's going to be blown wide open. And then there's going to be a retroactive study and realize what an absolute shit show it is. But then it's too late because a bunch of women, children, and, and uh, men are dead. Or you can proactively say before that happens, as a unit, Hey, why don't we stop bitching about a 50%, a 50 cent, you know, sales increase? I mean, excuse me, a pay increase. Why don't we fix the work week? Why, why do we work 56 hours a work week when, you know, the bank teller works 40? You know, why don't we start all banding together and create an annual fitness standard so we do hold ourselves accountable? Why don't we train in the rain at night, you know, when our fires are actually going to come, you know? And so putting that purpose back in, which ultimately is to be ready. God forbid, you know, when the emergency, you know, tones out and we've lost that. Like you said, there's a lot of jobs worth out there that, you know, just throw their gear on the rig, don't even check their pack, you know, and just look at their clock counting down till they get to get off shift the next morning. And that's not what our profession is about. No, no, it's not, not about it at all. And and it's unfortunate because like you said, the culture is almost like set up to self-destruct because they're telling people like that enthusiasm, like they're going to burn you. Like you're going to, you're going to get worn out. And it's like, how is that the right mentality? And same thing like the, the, the lesser two year olds, what I hear a whole lot is like, it's just not worth the fight. And I'm like, as a man, I'm like, what else is there to fight for? Like than this, like, why would I just, I, I've put my, my reputation and my job on the line for little, things here and there where people are like, why would you get involved in that? Why would you say stuff like that? And I'm like, why would I not know? Like, well, it was because your job could potentially be at risk. And I'm like, if I'm not willing to risk my job for you guys, why would you guys think I'm willing to risk my life for you guys? Like that it just was lunacy. We had a guy get in trouble and he had a whole investigation, but like he was totally not in the wrong. And whenever I wanted to talk to the chief about it or talk to HR about it, everybody warned me, like, don't say that. And I'm like, he needs like a character reference. The only people they're interviewing are the people who like are supposedly out to get him. And like nobody who's on his side is going to stand up and like say, Hey, this is a good man. And they're like, Nope, you just don't want to get involved if you're not going to get involved. I'm like, fuck, man. Like, I thought this was a brotherhood. I thought that like we had each other's back. And I said that ver- verbatim. I'm like, if I'm not willing to risk this job. That means I'm not willing to risk my life. Now, what do you think of your family and kids? And I get that and stuff, but I'm like, if I lose my job for speaking up for a good man or for a good cause or for the right thing, then that's not a place that I want to work, you know? And I didn't, and, and it was valued, and the guy got, kept his job, and, and it had a large part to do with myself and a couple of other people speaking up for him to show that there was another side because it's like this whole guilty till proven innocent kind of thing or, hey, like, Right now, what it happened is it seems like organizations as a whole value uh, obedience more than competence. It's just do as I say, stay under the radar, don't break PARM, don't break SOGs, just follow policy, don't 
toe the line really, or like, don't step over the line at all. Don't like just shoot the straight and arrow and you'll be good to go. And it's like, man, you got to have people push those edges and those boundaries. Cause that's where you can find new roads to lead us to better places. Yeah. Well, as the, as the saying goes, insanity is, you know, doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. Six, six firefighter funerals was enough for me. That's what made me start this podcast. You know what I mean? And so, you it's know, crazy. people getting butthurt about being called out because they don't train. The only time they put their freaking bunker gear on is for a 9-11 selfie for their social media. You know, yeah. I mean, it's, it's got to be said because I'm sick and tired of burying my brothers and sisters. And I'm surely, you know, sick and tired of hearing stories when, for example, one of my guests, his son was um, had his esophagus intubated and was RSI but not sedated. So he basically was alive while he suffocated to death by a paramedic. You know what I mean? These these are fucking unacceptable. So all this complacency causes these deaths, whether it's in our own community or whether it's the people we serve. And if you aren't prepared to acknowledge that you have to hold yourself to the highest of standards in whatever rank you are in a fire department or a police department, because people will die if you fuck up then you need to go fucking do something else. Go be an accountant or a plumber and no disrespect to those professions, but people don't die yeah. when you make mistakes. Yeah. Well, that was the thing too. So I guess the guy who kind of got in trouble was it was for calling out a student. We had a ride out and he wasn't just stepping up like when he was supposed to essentially is all it was very, very small. And when the guy called him out on it, essentially like, uh, it, it, it hurt his feelings and he didn't know if he wanted to be a firefighter anymore. And, and he was very polite about it and everything was fine. But what ended up happening was it showed that like calling people out for being bad at their job is worse than actually just being bad at your job. Like that's what the culture has created. And it's like, how is that? Okay. And we would sit around the kitchen table laughing about it. And it's like, not everybody's meant to be a firefighter or paramedic or veteran or police officer or something like that. And the guy who said it, he was like, I'm not made to be an astronaut. I will never be an astronaut. You send me to school for that. I am not making it. <laughs> He's like, so like, why is it that people think that anybody and everybody could just go do this job? Just because you tried doesn't mean that you're guaranteed a spot, you know? So it, like you said, I think it takes a band of brothers essentially to just kind of say enough is enough. Like we can't let this be acceptable anymore. Absolutely. Well, but it's becoming it's becoming very corporate, so it's going to be hard. So I am. I was just connected by a female firefighter here in my, um, you know, where I live in the county I live in, and she was telling me about a female firefighter in Kenya, and I don't know exactly how they met, but she is kind of basically putting um, her the her story out there firstly to to kind of help. Um, inspire more females in Kenya to become fire, you know, firefighters. But you also see like they're doing all this training. They got bunker gear, but they got no air packs. I mean, it's you know, wow. so so behind you know where most places would be. But they're doing this, you know, for probably next to no money, you know, in much worse conditions. And so the point is, you know, that we're going to try and I'm going to bring her on the show next week and hear her story and maybe inspire some people to be able to band together and send some equipment over there or, you know, whatever we can do to help raise the bar. But here's a woman in Kenya who gets it. So when you're paid and given benefits and health care and a pension, 
you sure as shit better better rise up and and that's the thing it's it's from it's about where it comes from it's like the fat shaming thing i don't want people to be overweight because i've spent 14 years putting yellow sheets over obese people with a sack full of meds that were supposed to save their life but Yes. That's coming from an altruistic point, but I'm not going to go and make fun of someone because of their size. I'm going to be the first one because I coach at a gym too to encourage them and help them and give them the tools to get back to the way they want to be. So fat shaming and making obesity socially acceptable are two very, very different things. And what I want is that person who was obese to find the beautiful potential of their human body and run and play with their kids and swim and do Spartan races and learn how to surf and go snowboarding and all these things that they're fucking missing out on because they believed a lie that was this whole fat shaming bullshit. So ultimately, all this stuff is where it's coming from. I care about the fire service because I don't want people to die. I care well, about the health and wellness as you were talking about because I don't want people to die. It's that very, it's just that simple. I want to kind of hear your opinion on this because I think about it a lot right now within the mental health culture is like, I went through my whole experience and the gym helped me out a lot. Reading helped me a lot. Writing helped me a lot. And I could actually absolutely say I, I was depressed at times. Um, I still don't know exactly how to unpack the idea of PTSD. I had TBI for sure. Uh, my memory, I had, I was all messed up and concussions and stuff. And so writing really helps with my memory. If I, if I don't write something down, like on my planners and stuff, like I had like notifications to make sure I remember this was happening today type of thing. Uh, and so I set these steps up to improve my, my mental health, but we've almost gone too far on the side of accepting uh, PTSD and accepting depression and accepting th these mental health crises to say that it's okay to be like this which it, it is, you know, because we don't want to shame people. We don't want uh, people to not come out with it and find solutions to heal themselves. But what I'm wondering is that if we've almost gone too far where we've made it such a taboo to fat shame people, have we almost made it taboo to say, Hey man, get your shit straight. Like it's not okay to be depressed. It's not okay to like do all that stuff where we've almost accepted it too much. And I kind of want to hear your take on that. Cause I think about it a lot where, Right now, even within the fire cultures, we have guys struggling with it, and like we're giving them all this time off, and we're and we're sending them all these resources and stuff like that. But the suicide rates are still super high. We are very cautious and walking on eggshells when we talk to them about certain things. We're like, I responded really well, almost like my my wife was, and she was like, "Hey, like we still gotta, we we want to have a family together. We gotta st still keep going, you know." And eventually, that's what kind of snapped me out of it, you know. So I think the problem that I've seen again. I'm not my, by no means an expert, but I've spent five years talking to experts and people that have had, you know, I mean, heartbreaking mental health journeys. Yeah. Um, but I think one of the mistakes I think we're making, firstly, you know, when you label something, you check a box, you know, and it's not about that. So PTSD, and there's a lot of people that don't want to use that word anymore, just PTS, PTSI. I mean, there's all these different acronyms. But ultimately, there's very little discussion about post-traumatic growth. So the first thing, you know, I always parallel this with my back injury I had a few years ago. Um, they wanted me immediately, painkillers, you know, anti-inflammatories. And then I know the next question is probably going to be surgery. And I was like, no, <laughs> we're doing physical therapy, chiropractic. Um, and then I found a thing called foundation training, which is amazing. But I use movement practice to not only heal my back, but to address the imbalances that have caused me to hurt my back in the first place. 
And so I was genuinely, legitimately stronger post-injury than I was prior. That same thing needs to be applied to the journey addressing PTSD or PTS. So there are so many therapies now that are doing so well, but it's also got to be, you got to be with the right person, obviously a culturally competent clinician. So someone who understands what a veteran does, what, you know, a police or fire. But if you're just looking at, you know, the discussion so much like, oh, it's what you saw. Oh, you've got PTSD because of what happened with the Connex box. No, mm-hmm. that's one piece of the pie. You've got oh, childhood yeah. trauma. You've got all those different, you know, uh, family dynamics that were changing over and over again. You've got the alcoholism in your family. You got, I mean, these, there's all these things leading up to it. Then you've got that. Now, you and I have both talked about our organizational stress, that feeling of betrayal. You did everything, you know, right in the military, and then some shitbag holds your career, you know, by the balls, basically. So you've got that. You've got um, sleep deprivation. I don't know what it was like so much in the military, but in the fire service, as you know, when you're in a busy station, you're not getting sleep. So if you're not addressing all these different pillars you're not going to be able to get someone through to the other side. And there are so many, you know, you've got obviously the psychotherapy, you've got EMDR, but then you've got ketamine and psilocybin and ibogaine that ironically you've got to go for two of those to a different country to get the, you know, treatment for what you did for this country, yeah. but that's a whole other yeah. conversation. Yeah. Um, and then yeah. equine therapy and saver warrior. I mean, there's just so many things out there, but the focus has to be on, yes, Tyler, you know, you've got the scap issue and you're missing part of your delt, so let's get you back to where you change the way that you move and we, we do the strengthening and mobility and get to where you can be a firefighter again. That's what we have to do with mental health. So I think that's what's being missed is some, the few are ruining it for the many, are chasing that PTSD retirement yeah. rather than realizing you can go through all the training, the treatment, I mean, get better and then just decide, you know what, fuck it, I don't want to be a firefighter anymore. That's fine as well. But playing the the medical retirement card if you're actually not. And there's some people that just struggle to get past that mental health thing and they need to be taken care of. But a lot of us are able to rehab and grow from it and either go back to the, the service or go, you know what, I think I want to transition to something different, which is completely fine as well. Absolutely. We've, we've talked about Younger multiple times. And in Tribe, he talks about how only like 10 or 20% of the military actually saw combat, yet like 90% of the military is what's claiming PTSD or some, some crazy numbers like that. And I can't, I'm terrible with remembering the, the, the actual specifics, but it, it goes to show that either one, people are playing the system to, to try to get the benefits from it. And it's like, we've almost made it cool to like say I served and I have PTSD almost because they see all the resources that people have and they almost make it to their identity, almost like people on the other side, like this, like, oh, I'm big and I'm proud type of thing. And it's like, well, no, I'm, I'm broken and I'm proud. So you better like watch out type of like, it's almost cool to like, just have like that, that ego where it's like, no man, like it's not okay to be like that. And in order not to be like that, and in order to actually heal yourself, like, it requires a ton of work. So I'm glad you talked about all that, that growth, because yeah, I've seen all of exactly what you called out on everything that I, that I've dealt with in my life. It's absolutely facets that I've tried to address over and over and over again, just like my, my left knee and my left shoulder is all messed up before every workout. I have to roll it out. I have to stretch. I have to do all that stuff. And so it's like every day I have to like mentally prepare to like get, get my mind right for the, for the job. I have to mentally get right, right before I start hanging out with my kids, you know, it's like, it, it is absolutely a, a practice and that, and that I want me, want people to understand that it's like, it's not cool 
or necessarily acceptable to have these things. It's okay to have them, but you have to work to get rid of them. Like you have to heal. And I don't, and like I said, I don't think that's being addressed as much. It's like, you have to heal yourself. You can have them and it's acceptable in a way, but it's not acceptable because when you are, when you have them, like they can't be an excuse for being an asshole. Like that's not okay. Just because you have this stuff, like it explains why you might have some of the, these issues, but you have to heal. And, and the, the healing process is not being addressed. Right. So I'm glad you, I'm glad you said all that. It reminds me of, I forget who it was now. One of my guests was talking about people identifying as their diagnosis. So, yeah, you know, I like, you know, I've got fibromyalgia, I've got this. And you, you, you can see there's, there's, a, there's a pity party being thrown. And it's not, again, meant to be insulting to that person. It's something that's been culturally ingrained into them by their upbringing. Um, but that's the thing. And I love what you just said a second ago is something I say all the time. It's a reason. It's not excuse. Absolutely. That trauma is always going to be with you forever. I can still see the decapitated three-year-old in the, one of the cars, car accidents that I ran on in, in Anaheim, but it doesn't haunt me because it's way, way back. You know, it's been processed. Um, but that post-traumatic growth, you take that trauma, you apply whatever works for you. And then you're able to move through it. You're going to be more resilient than you ever were before. And that's the conversation that's not being told, especially if you want to kind of get to the kind of alpha. I'm doing hyper, I mean, uh, air quotes now. But, you know, if you want to be the highest level in the fire service, in the military, in law enforcement, you have to have a calm mind. And that means dealing with, you know, your trauma, your past, getting, you know, mindfulness in, in your practice so that when you are in a gunfight or you're, you know, doing a, a primary search or whatever it is, you, you have the best chance of being as close to a flow state as possible. So understanding that PTS is, is not only a thing. Pretty much everyone has it at varying degrees. And that's the thing. People feel so alone. They feel like this can, I'm a pussy. No. Everyone is like that, but the problem is with us is that we're also really good at hiding stuff, which creates oh, yeah. the illusion that everyone else is fine. Once yeah. we bring that out, which I think we're starting to do, the next phase of this whole thing is a creating you know a group of counselors that are trustworthy and finding your tool in that toolbox that works for you to process through. But then that leveling up, which isn't really discussed, I'm better now because I've processed it. And not only can I process that trauma, I can apply these same tools to other things that piss me off in life, whether it's driving, whether it's my ex-wife, whatever it is, you know, <laughs> you, you, you've grown from it. So I think that's the missing piece. If you just hang your hat on, I've got PTSD and never move forward, um, even though that might be a thing that you, you you struggle with, just like a knee injury or a back injury the rest of your life, and if you stop moving or stop rolling or stop stretching, it will rear its ugly head. It, yep. it isn't you the same way as you're not a soldier and I'm not a firefighter. We're men that wore that uniform proudly, but that's just a little piece of the puzzle of who we actually are. Love hearing it, man. I really do. I'm glad that these conversations are happening because I talk about like banging your head against the wall. Sometimes I'm like, man, I'm having the same conversations with like the same people, but there's a, there's a niche of us that, that work that just get it, you know, and you surround yourself with guys like that. And so it's good to hear that, that, that those conversations are happening elsewhere too. Absolutely. And I think it is somewhat of an echo chamber, but I think that chamber is growing. Yes, absolutely. Well, one of the, the reasons why I think these discussions are getting bigger and bigger are things, obviously books, you know, poetry, podcasts, documentaries. So talk to me about when you started writing yourself 
and then how that journey led to meeting Keith and then the Dead Reckoning Collective? Yeah, so I, like I said, it was like this like transformative period of like gym, reading, and then writing for like my own personal growth uh, after I got hurt. I realized I, because I was by myself other than my wife, I was in Italy, like by myself with her and I became singularly focused. And when you have that mission, obviously like that's all you're worried about. And so you're not, you're not too concerned with thinking about anything else um, other than how do I get better? So when I got out though, I had somewhat of a singular focus, which was a fire service, but I was, I did a little bit of personal training, a little bit of uh, group fitness and stuff. And I kind of was all over the place. Like, all right, what am I going to do? And uh, my wife just pulled up. Um, we, I realized I needed, I needed to process what happened, like other than just kind of escaping from it. And I was told when I did my whole VA claims and stuff that I was running from the devil, essentially running from my demons. I was moving so fast. I was working so hard that I wasn't processing what, what all really happened. And with doing that, I, realized I need to stop and look back. And that's when I wrote that first essay, essentially talking about uh, leaving the battlefield prematurely, one that I talked about a little earlier. And it was because I felt like I didn't do what I needed to do. Give me one second. So I realized I needed to look back. And so I wrote that essay that I was talking about, the leaving the battlefield prematurely. And I realized at that moment, I just felt like I didn't accomplish what I was set out to go do. I'd worked so hard to get to that unit I'd worked so hard while I was at that unit. And then I witnessed one of my best friends die. And I really wanted to understand what that moment meant to me. And what it really meant was I had to rely on my wife. I had to rely on others to help me feel like I uh, did my job because those guys there are the only ones who will ever really understand what I went through. And my wife was the only one who was really ever there for me. If I tried to do it all by myself, like I wouldn't have... I wanted to be where I'm at today. I don't, I was, I never suicidal or anything like that, but it would have been easy for me to just say, yeah, I know this is just worth it. I'm just going to kind of chill and find something else to do and become pretty mediocre and just been whatever with it, you know, but that, that desire to still improve and that desire to uh, get better was because I felt like others relied on me and that probably comes from that team effort, but that's really, or the, that team environment as a kid, that's just what's always been, in me, not necessarily, I'm always just a people pleaser, but like, I like working with others. I, I like other people depending on me. I like depending on others and, and seeing them through it. I like hyping people up. Like, it's just, I love it. And so after that article, Keith had posted that, uh, or after I've been writing a little bit, Keith posted the Facebook status asking about um, starting a blog site. And I sent him that essay and he's like, this is going to be the first one. And so we started talking about the, uh, what all we wanted to do with it. And essentially we were doing something similar to this. We started the podcast. We started writing uh, articles about veteran transition and highlighting just those positive stories, just networking, essentially like just talking to very interesting people. And we were trying to shine this different light on the veteran community because we had saw these two spectrums, one, the special operations community, the, the Jockos and all the badasses, the, the guys who had done amazing things, but people take anything they say as the, the gospel or you saw people on the other side of the homeless veterans in Austin, you know, like proceed with caution. They're broken. Uh, we don't know how to treat them. We don't know how to understand them, all that stuff. 
And we're like, in reality, most of us are in that middle, you know, and that middle ground. Most of us could have gone either way. If I just stayed singular focus and didn't worry about my family, didn't worry about my future, uh, didn't worry about anything else, I could have gone the special operations community, you know, that was my singular focus. My, my only goal, I could have made it happen. If I didn't have the support of my family or didn't have anything to work towards, I could have easily just been screwed all, you know? And so to understand that that's the capacity of like the human spectrum um, really opened up my eyes that like, that's what people are only focusing on or those polarizing ideas. And so we wanted to shine the middle ground and like success can look as good as being a good father, being a good husband, um, transitioning, just going to law school, getting something completely out of the military or, or going and starting up a, a gym or all this stuff. And so we were just talking to these just cool people. And one of the cool people that we got talking to was the first author that we met, I mentioned a little earlier, or not the first, but the first author that we signed, which is Leo Jenkins. And he just wrote a poetry book at that time. And I've been writing poetry since I lived with my grandma before joining the military. And I just kept that to myself because it wasn't cool. It was, uh, I was an athlete in my mind. I was, I was, I was trying to be a manly man type of thing. And I'm not necessarily like that. I have, I feel a lot. I think a lot. Um, and it takes a lot for me to process that and just thinking about it isn't healthy. So I usually just talk and ramble on to people, which isn't always healthy because it just goes in circles or whatever. We're writing intentionally, or you become intentional to focus on a singular event, a singular idea, and really try to pull apart what you feel and think about that. And so poetry was that outlet for me for a while, um, while I was recovering. And then when I first started writing that much more five, six, seven years ago now. And Keith and I were like, Hey, we both actually write poetry. How about we put a book out together and do this ourselves where we will be the trial run to see if like dead reckoning could possibly be a po- publishing company. And going back to like those graphic design days, I, I knew how to work every program on every computer pretty much. I just liked tinkering on computers. And so I learned how to format a book. I learned how to design covers. I learned how to do all that stuff. And I was just messing around doing all that by myself. And then we compiled all the poetry together and then made it happen. And the reception was incredible. And after we got the reception from everybody, it just kind of validated that this was a market and a need for the veteran community because nobody was doing that yet. Uh, And that was talking about your experience in the written word without going through like the the publishing world, the literary community, that is such a turnoff for most people. And self-publishing is probably is such like an isolating endeavor that we were like, hey, let's make it a collective. Like, let's do this together. Like we always do better when we're doing stuff together. And so we wanted people to lean on us. We wanted to lean on others. And we just kind of hit the ground running with a lot of, we got the attention of a lot of really cool folks and they bought into what we were doing. Well, I have one of your authors, Neville Johnson, on the show. Yeah, um, yeah. Who's amazing. I'm in South Africa and living in New Zealand now, but another incredible story of joining the British Army, being in Northern Ireland, going, I don't know exactly who I'm even fighting for because <laughs> there's so many <laughs> yeah, yeah. countries Crazy. involved. Um, but, you know, again, very, very powerful poetry from him. Um, I think I asked Keith the same question, like, who, who are some of the, the authors that you have now or even some of the stories that really kind of resonated with you? Well, like I said, Leo influenced uh, us to like really make that decision. And so like he will always kind of have a 
special place for me, I think, just personally, because he was a medic for the Army as well. And when I first wrote that essay, Keith gave me his book, uh, First Train Out of Denver, and then also On Assimilation and also uh, Lest We Forget. And so I read his books first. So I was kind of more of a fan before it, before we became a friend then before we became business colleagues too. So like we, we, this relationship developed. And when he went off and wrote the first book, lest we forget, like he put everything he had out there just to say, Hey, this is, this is what the story on the ground is like. And then when he wrote first train out of Denver, he ideally talking to him now. And what I got from the book, it's like when you kind of just put fear behind you and you just go for like your dreams, like this is what you can accomplish. So that always kind of stuck with me. And then when he wrote poetry, I was just like, man, like this guy and I like just are going to click when, uh, whenever we finally meet. And we did luckily, but each individual story is just so cool. We just, we're about to put out, um, Mason, uh, Roderick's book and he's a dead gunner, uh, poet on Instagram. And he like is fresh out of the military. And I think his story is incredible because he, got into some trouble there towards the end of his Marine Corps uh, career. But he realized all of that trouble that he did was all his fault and he owned it. And then he wrote about it and was as vulnerable as they come. And when somebody's that vulnerable, like that is always extremely appealing to me because it shows us how authentic they are. Beautiful. Well, um, obviously Leo has been mentioned before, but uh, dead gunner, a poet i'm gonna have to look up and start following him as well so people listening where can they find um dead reckoning collective and you know where else are there on on other places online to follow them or you for example yeah so most of our stuff is on instagram it's just at dead reckoning collective uh our website's deadreckoningco.com um we're on twitter and we're on facebook same thing dead reckoning collective Uh, on twitter it's actually drc publishing um for me, my, my Instagram is just Tyler James Carroll. Um, mo- most of our social media is Instagram, and that's how they can find it. Uh, we're getting a lot better with the newsletters. Uh, if you sign up for that through the website, uh, but that, that's where people can find us. Well, Tyler, I want to be mindful of your time because we talked two hours. And I know your wife just came home, so I'll, I'll skip the the closing questions that I throw at some people. But uh, I just want to. I can take one or something, maybe. No, okay. Well, I mean, actually, well, the first one, I actually want to poach one of your previous guests, Tim O'Brien. Um, yeah. Yeah. I would love to get him on. Was that someone you found it easy to connect with? So he is actually currently right in the middle of writing the book. If you go watch his documentary, uh, The War and Peace of Tim O'Brien which I think you can get on anywhere you can get uh, documentaries. We watched it on Prime. Um, at the very end, he kind of alludes to possibly writing a book because the whole documentary is the struggle of him writing Dad's Maybe book because he's writing a book pretty much for his, his sons. He's an older father, and he just didn't think he was ever going to finish it, and he got sick during it and all this stuff. He's just an incredible documentary to show to such a cool, humble man. And we were able to talk to him as soon as that came out. And it's because he appreciates what we were doing. Uh, we actually became pretty cool friends with the documentarian. Uh, but when I reached out to him recently, he, he admitted that he is in the middle of writing that book that he was talking about at the end of the documentary. And he's kind of uh, limiting engagement with other people so he can focus on that. But uh, he, he loves the veteran community, loves the first responder community and all that. And so, if you, if you do reach out, I'm sure he, he'd be willing to, just maybe not right now. Yeah. But then the beautiful thing is the time for him to come on is when the book is ready and he wants to 
you know, let exactly. people know about it. Perfect. Well, in that case, then my guest suggestion, um, I always ask, is there a person you recommend as a guest? But I'm going to ask you, what are the chances of your grandmother wanting to come on the Behind the Shield podcast? Oh, man. She would love that. I think I we should do she, it. I, I, I would, would love funny. to have her on. That's a great idea. She has a hell of a story. And she's not connected. She doesn't, I think she has Facebook, but she doesn't have a whole lot of stuff. But she would, she loves to talk and people love to listen to her. So, yeah, I'll reach out. I'll, I'll give you her information. Beautiful. I think that would be an amazing conversation. So, thank you. All right. Well, then let's do the one quick, quick closing question. You mentioned war is a racket. So, what about you? If you could choose, you know, one, two, three books to recommend, what would they be? From Dead Reckoning or well, my from, favorite? Books? And anywhere on, on planet Earth or outside planet if you have some intergalactic <laughs> ones. <laughs> yeah. So my favorite book of all time is Kurt Vonnegut's Slaughterhouse Five. And I, I say it's my favorite because it w- it hit me at such a perfect time in my life. I was writing what, what I thought was going to be my memoir. And when I read it, it opened up my eyes of what writing could possibly be. And uh, especially talking about your story and he added elements of fiction to it and sci-fi to it and being somewhat of a science nerd, I kind of just really appreciated that. But he, attacked the idea of death in such a unique, creative way without being super dark. Uh, he made it funny and somehow, and I just thought that was incredible. And I just love all of his books. He's my favorite author. So I'll say Slaughterhouse-Five, but then I'll also caveat, or I'll piggyback off that, say any Vonnegut books. Um, another one is On Writing by Stephen King. If you ever want to write, I'm um, reading it now because anyway, I'm, I'm writing a, picture. a fiction. Yeah. Your, so, yep. I saw your picture. So, that one, uh, the way Stephen King talks about the craft of writing was super interesting. But he, the first half of the, of the book is a memoir essentially, and it shows how you can tell your story. And now, studying the craft of writing, like it's, I'm obsessed. I love it. And what if a good writer can make something so simple interesting? And that's what that book showed me. I'll never forget the chapter that he talks about uh, following his uncle with the toolbox. I don't know if you've gotten to that part yet. Um, I'm not sure because I, I I read it. I read half and then put it down for a long time, read the first half mm-hmm. again, and then finally picked up the second half. So now it was more into kind of like the the vocabulary and that kind of thing. But yeah. I've had very few times where I laugh out loud when I'm reading. His yes. sarcasm... I yes. love him. He's, he, being a fireman, you know, he's such a sarcastic, you know, he is. and he, his little great. things are just, just freaking genius. Yeah, he's super witty. And and that's what the, the, the subtlety of, I've always really appreciate subtle writing. Um, if I have a book that's like this thick, I'm, I'm intimidated by it. I have, I value my time and, and I'm like, I better get something out of this if I'm going to invest that much time into it. And his book just reads so quick. It's very subtle. And when I talk about the toolbox thing, essentially he was following his uncle to go fix like a window or something. He's young and his uncle tells him to go grab the toolbox and the toolbox is like 40 pounds or whatever. It feels like a ton and he lugs it all the way over there and he sets it down by his uncle and all of his uncle does is grab a screwdriver to fix whatever. And then the tosses the screwdriver back in and tells him to go take it back to the garage or whatever. And Steven's like, why, why did you make me carry this whole tool rather than just a screwdriver? And he says, you always come to every moment prepared with everything that you have. And it's just like that. And, and like that's just what writing could do is just tell a story so perfectly. Uh, my third one, we talked about tribe a whole lot and we talked about Tim O'Brien. So like, I feel like people should just go ahead and read those. So I'm not going to say the things they carry, but I will. And I'm not going to say tribe, but I will. Uh, 
another one and i'm a I'm like i'm kind of a nerd for human evolution i really like the book sapiens um and i really like like jordan peterson's book 12 rules of life so like those are kind of more like human evolution books that i really like um but man's search for meaning is probably one of my top favorite ones as well and that's a given as well yeah Yep, same copy that I have. <laughs> I was trying to think of ones that maybe people aren't always like going like their go-tos, but all right, so one that's not everybody's go-to, that's one of my favorites. And it's an Orwell book. So everybody thinks of Animal Farm or uh 1984, which are both incredible or uh what is it? Homage to Catalina or Cat- Cat- Catalonia, which is another good one. But uh The Road to Wigan Pier is one of my favorites which as an English Englishman, you might appreciate. Yeah, I'm going to have this funny because I'm actually circling around. I've done so much nonfiction because I try oh, and yeah. read a lot of people's books that are on here. But, you know, after a while, you're reading just a huge amount of biographies ultimately. Um, so yep. now with this yeah. writing this fiction, you know, A, I'm having to learn how to write a fictional story. I've got a concept in my head, but it's probably way too for complicated it, for the first writing. <laughs> but it is what it is. But now it I got to, yeah, I got to, read a lot so I can actually start formulating that kind of way of, uh, you know, descriptions. There's a, there's a song, uh, excuse me, there's a uh, book called Birdsong by Sebastian Folks, and mm-hmm. it's set in World War One. and the protagonist is a, a tunneler, you know, that, that goes between the trenches and tries to blow up the Germans, and it, an amazing book. I couldn't put it down. This was 20 years ago, so I picked that back up. That's awesome. So, yeah. Well, I'm looking forward to it, man. I bet you'll figure it out, and uh, I can always... I'll, um, I can send you a list of some, some writing craft books that I've picked up throughout my master's that will probably help out. Please. Yeah, that'd be amazing. I, I've been given one called Story and another one, Something Cat Writes a Story. Friend of mine, Jason Casper, who's a Green Beret, he's the one that sent it to me. Well, Tyler, I just want to say thank you so much. We have gone all over the place. As I mentioned, we've gone way over time. I know your wife has just returned home. It sounded like your dog was uh, excited in the background there. So, yeah. um Thank you so much. Thank you for leading us through. You got a very unique perspective from the military into the fire service. Um, you know, the, obviously revisiting some of the memories that I'm sure are, are painful, but there's so much value for people listening to stories like yours. So I truly appreciate you being so generous with your time today. Oh, absolutely. I, I'm glad that it, it lasted this long. We got to talk about a lot of things that I really enjoy talking about. So thanks for having me on and uh, forward to maybe another one.